say she was beautiful? I saw her once. It was a boy living with your mother's family. Lord Went held a great tourney at Harrenhal. Everyone was there. The Mad King, your father, Robert Baratheon, and Lyanna. She was already promised to Robert. And you can imagine what it was like for me, a boy from nowhere, with nothing to his name, watching these legendary men tilting at the lists. The last two riders were Barristan Selmy and Rhaegar Targaryen. When Rhaegar won, everyone cheered for their prince. I remember the guys laughing when he took off his helmet and they saw that silver hair, how handsome he was. Until he rode right past his wife, Elia Martel, and all the smiles died. I've never seen so many people so quiet. He rode past his wife, and he lay a crown of winter roses in Lyanna's lap, blue as frost. How many tens of thousands had to die because Rhaegar chose your aunt? Well met, limp-wristed kings and dwarf-beating andals, and welcome to Game of Microphones. I'm Lord Sterling, Sir Duncan, Lord Commander of the Night's Rewatch. Nice. <laughs> and I'm Lady Rachel of House Fox, the Slayer of Spreadsheets. <laughs> and this is episode 86. Yes. On this episode of our series Rewatch, we're covering Game of Thrones, Season 5, Episode 4, Sons of the Harpy. And in case you're not already aware, this series Rewatch is from the perspective of someone who's current on the show. That means you've seen up through Season 7. If not, there's still time to be slaughtered by a mob of gold-masked Sons of the Harpy, so you don't have to hear these spoilers. Warning! Warning! What an episode. Oh my god, there's so much happening in this episode. I'm going to switch it up on you this time and, and take number take number five for myself. Do it! Okay, awesome. Because <laughs> I have something that is just kind of cool that I wanted to talk about. My number five is You Know Nothing, Jon Snow. Okay, and this is my number one. Nice. Just, to, just specifically the uh, Melisandre scene? Just the Melisandre scene. Okay, well, you can jump in when we get to that, because mine is is more of the concept in general, and how this uh, that line by Melisandre sort of exemplifies a theme that's been going through this entire episode. Okay. Um. So basically, the 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 general idea is that Jon Snow knows nothing. We all know that, right? But the most important thing that Jon Snow knows nothing about, which everybody else knows about themselves, you know, is their their identity. Like uh -huh. obviously, you know, you're Rachel. I know I'm Duncan. Um, everybody knows who they are except Jon Snow, and it's arguably the most important in his case because he's he's the heir to the Iron Throne and uh, of royal lineage and everything. Um, so there's a bunch of clues in this episode that there's more to John than meets the eye, much like a transformer. Um, and we get our first clue 
when <laughs> when Stannis and Solis are talking um when as they watch John training the Black Brothers. So Solis is saying to Stannis that you th- you think highly of this boy. And he, he Stannis replies that yeah, he's the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, you know. And Solis is uh is being a bitch <laughs> as usual basically. <laughs> and she's like and a bastard by some tavern slut. Um, so Stannis isn't having it though. He sees through it and he's, he's like, perhaps, but that wasn't Ned Stark's way. And I saw this as being crucial foreshadowing to the reveal of John's true identity. And, uh, I just thought it was interesting that of all the people on the show that Stannis is the one, one of the people that sees that there may be something else going on here. Cause yes. Stan, yeah. Because uh, Stannis is like, he's a man of principle, right? And he knew that Ned was a man of principle. And so he's smart enough to know that there's something fishy about the official narrative of John's uh, existence. Yeah, I have a note here that this episode is John's slingshot into the conspiracy of him becoming or being a Targaryen because we also see in this episode Littlefinger talking to Sansa yes. in the crypts about Lyanna and Rhaegar. So I have this in my notes as well as this is his kind of springboard, if you will, into taking the role of being a Targaryen. Yeah, this is the first episode where they're really like shoving it in our, in our faces that there's something more going on here. Um, and it's interesting because Stannis like freaking barely knows Ned at all. You know what I mean? And, but even he know, knows more than Jon Snow, <laughs> who knows nothing. <laughs> He's like, I don't know if that's really the case, uh, which is funny. So, yeah, obviously, it's Ygritte's catchphrase, and it alludes to all kinds of stuff. Like, Ygritte, whenever she's using it, she's talking about how, like, oh, John, you don't understand this or that. The way things work, you know, is typically what it's being referred what's being referred to when somebody says, you know nothing, John Snow. Um, and uh, but, but the funniest part of it all is that <laughs> he doesn't know anything about himself. And that's like the key sure. issue. I think that every time that that Ygritte says, you know nothing, Jon Snow, or that this is brought up, is that it's, it's really just alluding to the fact that Jon Snow doesn't know who he is. It's, it's just one clue that there's a mystery surrounding Jon Snow, something that he's unaware of that's important. Um, so I think that... You know nothing, Jon Snow, as it applies to anything else, is sort of a red herring um, distracting us from like the it. thing that Jon really doesn't know about, which is the most important thing of all. So uh, it's kind of cool. And it's ironic because he he does think he knows himself. Right. He has grown up as like this bastard and he's worn this chip on his shoulder and he knows that that's a sore, sp- a sore spot with him. And so it's kind of a funny little conundrum that... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. He really does know nothing exactly. about himself. Yeah, his whole life is centered around um, his identity as a bastard, as the bastard of Winterfell, as being illegitimate and you know hated by by Cat uh, and everything like that. So it's just so like ironic and tragic that everybody knows who they are except john who knows nothing about like the reality of the situation, because everything would change if. You know, if John's identity was revealed, history would have been entirely different. So it's like the most important Completely. piece of information. It's just so funny. But yeah, every time you hear, you know, nothing, John Snow, it's 
hinting to that fact that there's a mystery of involving Jon Snow. I like that. Nice. Thanks. So b- before Melisandre shows up here, we'll just finish talking about these each of these little scenes as we go, if that's all right. Sure. So uh, Solis is lamenting over her failure to produce an heir for Stannis, a she male have heir. Given you a son. Yeah, and uh, he's like, "It's not your fault." You know? And she's like, "I gave you nothing but weakness and deformity," and it's just horrible because she has all this angst pent up about about poor little Shireen, you know, and she doesn't deserve to be hated like that. She's she's a, an amazing uh, person and should be recognized totally. for such, you know, like Martin Luther King said, uh, people should be judged by the content of their character, not the scars on their face, basically. You know, basically. that type of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Mel approaches, Melisandre approaches at that moment and she's like, those scars mean nothing to the Lord of Light. You know, your her father is is the Lord's chosen king, and her father's blood runs through her veins. And it's cool because she's shutting down Solis, right? And she's, like, sticking up for Shireen. It's like, yeah, she's pumping Shireen. She's got Shireen's back, you know? But that's a red herring to throw us off from her, her the murder plot. I was going to say, that is totally not what's going on here, because they <laughs> exactly. both exchange those looks of knowing that their plan is to sacrifice her oh. by... You know, Malisandra saying those scars mean nothing to the Lord of Light. It's almost reassuring Solis that they are making the right decision. And that there's value in her blood. Yeah, it's not about her face. It's about her blood and her sacrifice. Exactly. To propel Stannis to being the prince who was promised. It's so funny. It's like for the unknowing viewer, it's like, oh, yeah, cool. Everybody, you know, <laughs> she's standing up for her. <laughs> it's awesome. A total double meaning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but really, it's like, we need her blood, you know? We're going to murder her, it like, in an episode or two from now. And Selyse is kind of, like, cowed by Melisandre, kind of shutting her down here, and she runs off like Napoleon Dynamite, like... <laughs> shuffles off the off screen hilariously <laughs> so um melisandra is asking stannis if they're marching on winterfell and he's like yeah we gotta beat the snow you know and she's like listen you left me behind last time in favor of sir davos and your whole fucking fleet got destroyed so it's probably not a good idea to do you that you won't this make time. this mistake again <laughs> right yeah <laughs> and he's like i won't and then he says i need you and it's like whoa whoa like sexually <laughs> so i think talking? that's totally out of character for stannis to say that he needs somebody yeah and uh that's, i thought that was an interesting line for him yeah it's it's she must be like you know working her manipulation on him somehow or something like that <laughs> um it's it's just kind of funny because she shuts him down too and she's like you only need faith my king you know which is just kind of funny um so then we move on and john snow's just beating people down basically the whole time down there wait before we go on though i love sure. her I, I love it when she, stana says to her and you my lady what do you need and she goes to serve my lord, and the camera pans over to John. Oh, true. Which foreshadows him becoming maybe like the cho- like the actual chosen one that she's actually been in search of. Right. So I thought that that like was like serving kind of- the Lord of Light will have something to do with John. It's foreshadowing. Yeah, because she certainly she certainly feels something with him. 
you know, oh, yeah. from a power perspective, we'll, which we'll, we'll get into later. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, I just had to make that that camera angle that, you know, peering at John. Yeah, that upward from shot above. as he's parrying. Oh, yeah, yeah. First, yeah, they're looking at him from above. Yep. Yep. So I, I thought that that was great cinematography. Yeah, I agree. And John is just he wields that sword like nobody's business you know it just flashes through the sky or through the air just shivers through the uh through the air it's yes awesome. he does so uh john is then signing ravens to lords and ladies of the north yes this uh, is such an awesome scene yeah sam is great oh yeah it's so funny uh and he's lord ashford lady coalfield <laughs> lord smallwood that's an unfortunate name smallwood <laughs> Oh my god, I didn't even pick that up. Yeah, uh, it's just, you know, brutal. Yeah, got it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Lord Wibberly, that's a good name, too. Yeah. Lord Wibberly. More than Lord Wibberly. <laughs> <laughs> and then Sam kind of like, uh, push, push, uh, passes John a piece of parchment, and it, you can tell he's nervous about John's upcoming reaction, and John's like, not him. <laughs> it's like, I know, I'm sorry, but... We need men and supplies, and Ruth Bolton's the Warden of the North, you know? <laughs> I love Sam. He's yeah, so nervous. Totally. He's like, like, oh, crap, he's going to like try to slide it in, and John's like, no. <laughs> yep, and so John is, uh, is, is in a, he's being put in the same position here that Sansa was put in last episode, being forced to be diplomatic towards Ruth Bolton yes. to achieve another purpose. Which is kind of interesting, a good little parallel between the two. And um, so he, he, he resists at first, you know, he murdered, he murdered my brother. My brother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so Sam has to remind him, you know, we swore to be watchers on the wall. We can't watch the wall with 50 men, you know, <laughs> and we can't He's get so more men. He's so good at persuading people to do things. Yeah, he is. He, he definitely has a gift for that. Definitely. I agree. And uh, so he points out, you know, we can't get more more men without the help of the Warden of the North. He kind of facilitates the flow of that type of thing. And um, so he, he signs the parchment, throws down the quill, and <laughs> slides Pushes the chair back. back. Yeah, yeah, in a moment of exasperation. And uh, it just shows, goes to show you, again, that John is like one in... Like, like Ned, as Eamon said, oh, he must have been... If that's true, then he was one in a 10,000 men, you know, and it's a similar type thing with John as he is a man of true integrity in, in my opinion, as much, if not more so than, than Ned, because, um, as I discussed last episode, um, comparing John to Alistair, Alistair can't put aside his personal feelings to do what's right for the watch and for his command. Um, just because it's John suggesting it, he refuses to seal the tunnel and it results in the deaths of Gren and those other five guys down in the, the other uh, men of the night's watch. Yeah. So, um, in, in, whereas John is able to put aside his differences to do what's important and what needs to be done for the benefit of, of his people that is responsible for. And so he puts aside his differences with Roose Bolton here and does what needs to be done. He behaves in a diplomatic manner and humbly requests help basically as, as, as painful as it is for him to do so. Um, so it just shows you that 
he's willing to do what it takes, even if it's hard and even if it sucks and if it's uncomfortable. And it's just uh, something I admire about Jon Snow's character. Definitely. I find it interesting, too, because at a, at a point in the future, Ramsay, I think he either says it to Sansa or to Reek that Jon Snow's the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch now. And I always kind of wondered how Ramsay got that information. Mm. Like, I'm sure it gets around, but I think also this letter, this letter is what caused that knowledge to get there quicker than probably word of mouth did. Yeah, good point. Good call. Forgot about that. So, uh, so then the red woman enters. Lord Commander. <laughs> How can I help you? Come with us as we ride south, she says. None of us know the castle as well as you do. It's hidden tunnels, it's weaknesses, it's people. And I like that type of thing because hidden tunnels are like my favorite thing hidden passages and castles and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, there's um at the I went to Oregon State and there's catacombs under the nice. under the campus. Yeah. That's cool. It's really cool. I went in some tunnels underneath uh one of the old uh, like mental asylums in uh, New Jersey. It was pretty cool. Oh my god. <laughs> I don't know the, about that. They had the tunnels all decked out for like a haunted house thing. So oh, you're going God. through the tunnels and there's like clowns and oh, like no, all, ki <laughs> all kinds of crazy stuff going on down there. No, thank you. In the catacombs. <laughs> it was great. Um, I can't remember what the asylum is right at this moment. I'm drawing a blank. But uh, so Melisandre goes in there and she's like, Winterfell was once your home. Don't you want to chase the rats out of it? I thought that was a great line. And yeah. you know he wants to, right? but totally. um, he can't and you can see that he's slightly uncomfortable in her presence um, I think it's because she's a redhead yeah and he's like attracted to her potentially yeah because I think I said this last episode he almost lost his virginity to Roz who's a redhead right he loves he his he fell redheads. in love with Egret who's a redhead him and Johnny Stitches yeah <laughs> <laughs> and um now Malisandra is the red woman so and she's attractive yep. you know and he's like oh my god right i think she also kind of creeps him out though like he gets like oh completely you know like yeah like weirded sure. out vibes <laughs> yeah i mean she's like looking at him like she wants to consume <laughs> yeah, him yeah, yeah i consume him yeah perfect choice of words um yeah it's just kind of funny watching him squirm a little bit he's, yeah uh, it's for great sure. you know so it's like, Castle Black is my home now. The Night's Watch take no part in the wars of the Seven Kingdoms. And uh, he's just, it's, it kind of reminded me again of Sansa in season one when she's like just reciting those lines to Tyrion of what she needs to say. Like, my father was a traitor, you know, I'm loyal to the I king. Traitor's blood. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's just saying what he needs to say. And uh, it's just kind of funny. And uh, she makes a very true statement, as as fucked up and like horrible in some ways as Melisandre is, sacrificing Shireen and like doing all of these horrible um, Machiavellian slaughter of the individual for the benefit of the collective type things. Um, she makes she she her goal is right in the end, at least. You know, she she says here, "There's only one war: life against death." And we know that's true. You know, we've we've seen hard home. And I think John even knows it's true in this moment because he's seen the dead as right. well. Yeah. So she I like, mean, yeah, exactly. He, deep down he knows that that's the true statement. Right. So they 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 as as different as their methodology is for accomplishing the goal, um, their their goal, their end game is the same. 
and uh, I find that that the, it's a similar parallel in like with politics, you know, that people get all up in arms fighting with each other over over their ideas of how to accomplish goals. But in the end, you know, whether you're on the right or the left or Republican or Democrat or liberal or conservative or libertarian or whatever, your goals are the same. You want people to be f- happy and free and wealthy and independent and successful, you know. So totally. I it, couldn't agree more. Right. So it it, it don't don't tr- focus so much on on the methodology and and you know the goals is the same. The goals the same basically. And that that statement kind of plays plays true to when they all meet season seven when they're all down in King's Landing. I mean they're all on different sides of the let's call it the political spectrum or the right. game the game yeah. board. And really what it comes down to is we really should just put all of our differences aside because it really doesn't fucking matter how we get there. The fact of the matter is, is that we have an army of dead people marching on the wall and we're all going to fucking die if we don't do something about (laughs) it. So like stop fighting between each other and let's collaborate. We may not get along all the time, but we have to respect each other. Right. And we should love each other. Yeah. I couldn't agree more with that sentiment. Nice. Yeah. So I'm like, ain't that the truth? You know, there is only one war what that, that matters. So uh, she's like, come, let me show what you're, you what you're fighting for. He's like, you're going to show me some vision in the fire. Forgive me, my lady. I don't trust in visions. No visions. No magic. And I'm like, lies! It's a glamour. It is magic. You know? <laughs> Your perfect tits yeah. are a lie. <laughs> totally. Just life. <laughs> And she uh, she opens her her what is that a blouse a dress I don't know a robe she opens her robe thing and uh, grabs his hand and pulls it to her naked waist and entranced he starts reaching upwards to her breast and uh, cups it and she's like do you feel my heart beating and he's like oh and he's like totally tranced <laughs> out you know like he is like in a trance if you look at him. Yeah, he's like boobies. (laughs) You know, like the treasure chest just opened and you see all the the glimmering, the the golden reflection. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so uh, she goes on, there's power in you. And this is a very important line. It's another clue that there's more going on than meets the eye with Jon Snow. Transformers! The only men we've seen her seduce, or try to seduce, have had king's blood. First of all, Stannis, and they yep. produce a shadow baby. And then Gendry, she gets him down on a bed, like, does yep. goes through the whole seduction thing with him as well. She actually, like, kind of does him for a little bit, too. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> and, uh, and then she uh, attempts it here with Jon. And there's sort of a coded message here. Um, there's power in you. And another quote from Melisandre is, there's power in King's blood. Yep, so I if, wrote this down too. Yeah, so if you put those two lines together, as like if they were a math equation, for instance, Y plus 2 equals X. There's power in you. Y plus 2 is there's power in both equations. And X would be you, Jon Snow, and King's blood. So X equals both Jon Snow and King's blood. And King's blood. Right. Yep. So it's a it's a it's a coded hint 
that John and King's blood are related, that they're the, the same thing. So it's another really cool uh, hint to John's true lineage in this episode. And this is where she fucks up and kind of goes like Sith Lord sort of <laughs> on, uh, on John, you know. Feel your hate, Luke. Use it. You resist it. Yeah. And that's She's, your mistake. Exactly. His, uh, Embrace his power. It. The, the power, you know, Emperor Palpatine power and uh, embrace it, you know, and he kind of snaps out of it at that moment. And he's like, wait a second. I don't want to pulls his hand away really fast. Yeah. Jerks his hand back and his whole facial expression changes. And they, those lines sort of like snapped him out of his trance and made him wary of what she was saying. And again, here, John is one in 10,000 men. Like who else could possibly resist (laughs) her in this situation? Yeah. You know, and his his uh his retraction of his hand and stuff makes her escalate her tactics. So she moves in closer and sits on his lap and starts getting like really sexual about it, you know, like the Lord of Light made us male and female, two parts of a greater whole. In our joining there's power, power to make life, power to make light, and power to cast shadows. I thought that last part was interesting. Why? The power to cast shadows. I, to, I, I took it as she is calling herself out that she influences others by using the Lord of Light. That's a great way to look at it. That's really cool. Yeah, using the Lord of Light, casting shadows and creating the shapes of the shadows like and however you choose. allegory of the cave kind of shit. Exactly. You know? Totally. Yeah, that's, that's like the brilliant. masters behind the, the glamour, you know, they're, they're projecting that perception of reality. She's projecting this perception that the lord of light is the one true god yeah they design the shape of the shadows yeah so she decides what to what to bring about and what to keep to herself and we know that from the bath scene with her and Celise, like she has an arsenal of potions that she uses to manipulate reality Mm -hmm. which essentially i mean if you look at it from the allegory of the cave perspective that's exactly what's going on is People are manipulating other people's reality by using casted shadows. Totally. That's amazing. I like that. Great, great pull there. So good. And the other um, hint here is the, uh, you know, relating to the shadow demon, of course, as well. Oh, of course, yeah. Uh, which... You know what? I didn't even make that one. That's... <laughs> <laughs> the more obvious of the two, but yours is like so cool. More, uh, you know nuanced and philosophical i totally went to like plato and not the shadow baby <laughs> yeah it's it's great because i mean it, I, I bet it wouldn't surprise me if george was like thinking on mo- both of these levels as well you know what i mean sure, which is what makes absolutely. the writing so good how it can be interpreted in so many different ways like this um but yeah you know she has sex with stannis creates the shadow demon and i'm wondering if she thinks that something similar could happen here that she could have sex with john here and it could give her the power to forge within her womb another shadow demon to send into winterfell yeah i was wondering that too because we know that her purpose with gendry was not to like have complete sex she like got him all aroused and then she leached him Mm -hmm. she just wanted his blood but she wanted to kill him first leeching him was like the compromise yeah totally um but john i think she's looking to oh she's another shadow baby she totally is yeah power to make life 
And to cast shadows, to your point, she's going to birth another shadow. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Super, super intense. And uh, she, you know, she's basically telling us here, if her intent is to cast a shadow, to create a shadow demon, that means John has king's blood. You know, that's that's what that means. They're basically telling us here, John has king's blood in semi-coded language again. Um, Definitely. Which is awesome. I just fucking love this shit. And uh, (laughs) it's so cool, man. Yeah, because, you know, only Stannis could help her make a shadow demon before because of his king's blood is rich king's blood basically so john is (laughs) desperately trying to resist as she's sitting on his lap and like face to face with him and he he tries one tactic first he's like i don't i don't think stannis would like that very much you know and she's (laughs) She's like then don't tell him then we shouldn't tell him right (laughs) so uh i'm like cheating bitch you know this is this is another thing that would make john reluctant because it's not honorable to uh to cheat with like uh, you know go behind stannis's back like this right sure she's telling him to go against his instincts to use his power to go behind stannis's back and uh next to try to to break his vows you know so he switches tactics here after she switches that one on him and he's like i can't why why i swore a vow you know and to her look she's just like really that's what you're going with like she calls bullshit on it you know with like her facial expression for sure yeah yeah so his tactics change again and he's like going through a list of excuses he's like i loved another <laughs> and she flips it I on still him love again. Her. Yeah. get off me <laughs> the dead don't need lovers only the living and he's like i oh, know but i still love her and he like she like still is trying to like do her thing and he like grabs her arms and like throws them down and like basically is like get the fuck off me you know and she totally. gets shut down, which is unusual for her, I imagine. She must not have brought enough of her... Uh, she probably expected she didn't need any like special potions or <laughs> shit like that for John. Uh, she was so wrong. Damn. Very wrong. Yeah, so he's she, he's got a wall up for sure. No pun intended, being that he's at the wall. Yep. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. <laughs> so uh so she, she shut down and she like gets up you know strings up her her uh robe again and starts walking towards the door like a little bit sulking kind of you know but then she turns around at him and this is when uh she she throws out the line at him you know nothing john snow and then sort of like he's s- like oh Right, and he's, she sort of like smugly grins, at like knowingly, like, I know what I just said, that's right, and walks out. Do you think out. she's maybe seen them in a vision together before? Probably. Because, she, yeah. like, I, I mean, I loved what you said earlier about her basically telling the John, like, you know, you don't know anything about yourself because you don't know that you're a Targaryen, essentially. Right. But... To use those exact words. Oh yeah, it's no, it's a, it's a it's a triple entendre or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, there was fire she has to raging have seen all around point. them when Egret died at the Battle of at Castle Black. You know, she could have seen through any of those flames. Yeah, him rocking her. 
yeah. Um, campfires north of the wall, you know. Okay. There's there's ample opportunity where she, like. That's what I was thinking. I'm like, how did she know to say those exact words? Yeah, she. Yeah, she she knew. You know, this was not a coincidence. Just talking about John's lineage, like this is any grit reference. You know, especially since the last thing John said was talking about grit. You know, I still love her, um, but. It's a great double entendre because she's also talking about how she was just trying to extract his king's essence from him and uh, use him for for his power. And he's completely clueless to that. She's like, you know, nothing, Jon Snow. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like you don't even know who you are. I know more than you. I'm trying to use you for for the for <laughs> I was going to say the goo, but that's not right. <laughs> for, for for the for the blood the king's blood you know um so it's just kind of funny that she we're basically told as as plainly as possible here that she was trying to have sex with him to create a shadow demon and that's because he has king's blood telegraphed to the t and yeah the look and shock of shock and confusion on his face when she said that says that is just fucking priceless i know it gives you kind of like he had to have gotten like goosebumps. Like, am I looking at her like reincarnated? What the fuck? Right. Like, like what is going on here? Nobody's ever said that to Jon Snow before. You know, it's no, it's, it's not a other than Ygritte. catchphrase. Yeah. Yeah. So terrifying. If if he wasn't creeped out by her beforehand, he knows that there's like some kind of mystical shit going on with her now. That's got to have his, uh, you know, the hair on the back of his neck standing up. For sure. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, she's she's obviously, like, criticized, like, much in the way that Ygritte would use it, you know, she's, like, she'd be criticizing John for his lack of understanding for something, you know, so Melisandre's criticizing him here for behavior that she considers irrational, like, you don't, you know resisting. nothing, Jon Snow. Yeah, resisting, yeah. staying loyal to, like, a dead person who doesn't need your love anymore. But at the same time, she's telling him, like, you know, nothing. I'm trying to extract your essence because you have king's blood and you're fucking clueless to this entire reality. You don't even know who you are. <laughs> and uh, so she walks out and then John is just sitting there, like, in shock, wide-eyed after uh, after that, which is you know, pretty intense. So For sure. moving on, we got Sansa lighting a candle in the crypt of Winterfell, which is she... Is this uh, still your number five? Yeah, we can collaborate on this part. Okay, because this is my... Or this is my number five too. Okay, so how about you uh, go in? You like go ahead with it, and I'll jump in if uh, there's anything that I want to mention in there as well. Sure. Yeah. So I I love this scene. I almost put this as my number one because it's one of my favorite scenes in the series. Yeah. And she's down in the crypts, and I really feel in this moment she's reflecting and in and soaking in the nostalgia of being back home because mm -hmm. when we first meet Sansa, she cannot wait to get the hell out of Dodge. <laughs> right. King's Landing sounds wonderful. Yeah, she wants to get the heck out of here. She's lived I, I always kind of picture it as like someone living in like the rural country and having dreams and aspirations to go to like New York City and living the dream there and then realizing it's not all the glitz and glam that it's made out to be and they go home and there's something about going to the woods and it's quiet and it's peaceful and it's beautiful and you just always you always love home more if you've moved away and come back right essentially you, you're you're um 
you're you take it for granted while you're there you know yeah and then you realize how much you miss it when it's gone like anything else you know like like without pain you wouldn't feel joy type thing without being away you wouldn't feel you know the the nostalgia for home or the value necessarily yeah so i think she's kind of feeling this right now because she wanted to get the heck out of there now that she's back she's wandering around she's lighting a candle for her father she's lighting a candle for her her aunt i like how she like dumped the wax onto the hand and then stuck it in there to make it stand up that's really cool um i think she just appreciates her family more than before and i think at this point in the series she feels more like a stark than ever before yeah she sure. always wanted to be somebody else. She wanted to be the queen. She wanted to be, you know, a Southern Baratheon's, lady. yeah, wife. She wanted to, you know, wear her hair like the Southerners. And right. I noticed exactly. that her hair was more done up like the Northern girls. Like she's re-entering that. She's embracing her roots. Exactly. And she finds the feather that Robert laid in Leona's hand when he was down at the in the crypts with ned in the pilot episode yeah i think it was really cool that they reincorporated that little feather into the picture i loved it i thought it was so awesome because when we cue littlefinger just right after this you know he talks about basically Leona was the catalyst of Robert's Rebellion. Yeah, this is the most critical story in the whole show. Yes. Like, hands down. So, Baelish enters and he goes, I, might, I thought I might find you here. And they're looking at Lyanna's statue and your Aunt Lyanna. And Sansa's like, you know, Father never talked about her. Sometimes I'd find him down here lighting the candles. They say she was beautiful. And we get Littlefinger's amazing kind of monologue here. This is one of my favorite monologues that he does. Not that not in the fact that it's just super important from the show perspective, but his delivery of it is just totally 100% Littlefinger. (laughs) You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. um, So I saw her once. I was a boy. I was living with your mother's family. And, you know, they went to attorney in Harrenhal, which I found funny because he ends up being Lord of Harrenhal, you know, earlier. In the- oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. True. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, every everyone of importance was there, essentially. The Mad King, you know, Barristan Selmy, who else? The Robert Baratheon. Kingslayer. Um, your father. Yeah. And at this point, Leona was already promised to Robert. So... Mm-hmm. I loved his sentiment too. Like you could imagine what it was like for like a little boy like me who is from the fingers. A boy from nowhere with nothing to his name. Watching yes. these legendary men tilting at the lists. And then we come to find out the the, the last two writers were Barristan Selmy and Rhaegar Targaryen. And I love that being that this is Barristan Selmy's last episode. Oh, it kind of foreshadows his death that he loses yeah, this fight. Like, this, this, oh man, that's that fucked. he lost this, and then he ends up losing at the end of the episodes. Oh. I know Batman. We'll get to Batman, I'm sure. Yeah. But um, you know, Rhaegar won. Everyone cheered for their prince. He had that amazing silver hair. He was really good looking. He pulled off his um, helm, and all the the ladies started giggling over he swelled across <laughs> yeah, the land yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly <laughs> and 
you know, I, I found it funny that Sansa says, you know, her aunt was beautiful and Baelish says how handsome Rhaegar Targaryen was and they created Jon Snow. So I'm just going <laughs> to throw that out there. <laughs> um, and then this is when this, his monologue gets a little dark. Yeah, the girl's laughing and everything until... He rode right past his wife, Aelia Martell, and all the smiles died. Yeah. And I like how he says Aelia Martell because from a first-time viewer, the story is a little out of place from the perspective of character development. And, you know, we've only really ever seen Barristan Selmy and Robert Baratheon and Ned Stark who are mentioned in this monologue. So the other players are really just from a first-time viewer, we don't really understand their major importance Totally. And so I remember the first time watching this, I finally, it connected with me that Aelia Martell was married to Rhaegar Targaryen. Right, because we just had her name pounded into our heads a few episodes ago. Aelia Martell, say her name. You know? Exactly. So that was a huge like show connector for me as a first time viewer. Like, oh, okay, this all makes sense now. Right. Like, he was married. And he loved Leona, so it all kind of like clicked together for me. Yeah. Um, so everybody's happy until he rides past her and and all the smiles died. And like you were just going to say, he's never seen so many people so quiet. That image is just so intense, you know. He rode past his wife and lay a crown of winter roses in Leona's lap. Yep. Blue as frost. Oh, I love that. You know, how many tens of thousands of had to die because Rhaegar chose your aunt. And I thought this was such, I mean, talk about a red herring that comes to fruition in season seven. The fact that he laid a crown of roses in her lap. Oh, really, a crown. A crown, okay. Yeah. A crown of winter roses because she's from the north, blue mm -hmm. as frost. Why, if he chose her, why would he rape her? Right. You know, because we came to find out in this episode as well what a nice man Rhaegar Targaryen was. Right. And that's Barristan more hints. gives that you know? story of him going down and singing with the common people and Being doing so it for money, but giving it away. And he wanted to interact with his people. Mm -hmm. And so this whole, to Sansa's point, yeah, he chose her, but then he kidnapped her and raped her. That does not make any sense from what we know about Rhaegar Targaryen and, up to this point. And did you see Peter Baelish's face contort? Like, you really believe that? Yeah. I thought it was interesting because yeah. uh, I was like, oh, has Peter Baelish put two and two together and figured out who John really is, maybe? Because that. Maybe is... not who John is, but maybe that they were having an affair. Right. But think about it. They have an affair, they disappear. Uh, they're both killed, and then all of a sudden Ned comes back with John. I, I don't think it's beyond Littlefinger's intellectual capacity to put two and two together out here and like figure out that John was the result of that. And maybe that's why he came to help during the Battle of the Bastards too. I mean, Sansa thinks that they came for her, but maybe Baelish was coming for Jon Snow too. Maybe to to meet him and to uh, like size him up and mm -hmm. um it's just interesting and he chooses not to expound on this like he looks at her like you really believe that but he doesn't bring it up he lets her go on believing 
that Liana was raped and kidnapped. And um, I was just like, it's really interesting. For whatever reason, he doesn't press the issue. Maybe he just likes having a one-up on her, like knowledge is power and he knows something yeah, she doesn't. I think, you know? that's, I think that's a little bit more Littlefinger-ish. Yeah. And then I was wondering too, like, so was the... Rhaegar abducted and raped Lyanna Lai, um, perpetuated by Ned to prevent Robert from finding out that John was conceived in love and legitimately named a, a Targaryen. I think so. I think so, because if she wasn't raped, kidnapped and raped, then Robert would have probably figured out that they were having an affair with each other because of this story that Baelish just told Sansa. Mm -hmm. Like apparently it seems like at the time when Robert's rebellion began, the, they were under the impression that she was abducted and raped. And that's like kind of one of the reasons Robert was or Robert and Ned. I think, uh, I think that Robert was at least, but it, it also could have been Robert just, wanting to rationalize liana like leaving essentially you know it may have sure. been like a defense mechanism like oh she must have yeah. been kidnapped you know type thing like she wouldn't abandon me you know or whatever a but, prideful thing yeah either way even though ned knows the truth and knows john's real name when he comes back with john he perpetuates the lie and doesn't obviously spread the information that, that <laughs> they were married and that john is legitimate so uh, it's just kind of interesting. Um, I'm wondering where that that theory originally came from. Yeah, me too. I would love to hear about that more yeah. of where that all stemmed, and maybe him and Howland Reed decided that that was the best story to tell in order to keep John's identity truly safe. Hidden. Yeah, maybe maybe. There was maybe all they knew was that Liana was gone. Maybe nobody knew what the deal was at, um, before that. You know, I don't know. It's interesting. Um, worth mentioning since we're talking about this scene also is uh, and the mention of winter roses is that Liana had a particular affinity for winter roses, and um, I think that she was clutching a like a bouquet of winter roses as she died. Um, oh, interesting. But there's also she's. She's referred to as a winter rose in the books repeatedly, and there's a lot of symbolism um, with winter roses and Liana and John. Um, oh, even cool. with like a winter rose growing out of the wall, at, like a, ch a chink in the ice wall at one point and oh, everything. Oh, crazy. You know, like That's cool little cool. stuff. Clues to John's identity and being um, being related to Liana in, in a close way. Um so yeah, it's just yeah, it's just really interesting and just such a crazy story. Like <laughs> the 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 tourney sure. of Harrenhal is just critical, pivotal moment. Definitely. Oh, and I liked what you said about the uh, talking about laying a crown of of the winter roses in Liana's lap because it it it's essentially another telegraph that he actually did like give her a crown in a manner by marrying her. That's true. Yep. You know, so this was like the symbolic crown for their their secret marriage. Yes, that's so cool. Do you think maybe they were already married at this point? Uh, I doubt it. I think that this is when he caught her eye. He had been studying like 
the prophecy of the prince that was promised and stuff like that. And at first he had thought that he was the prince that was promised. And as things progressed in his life, he came to believe that his son would be the prince that was promised. And for some reason, he must have decided that it was not um, one of his children with Elia. And he seems to be large, like, like strongly driven by, uh, by prophecy, interestingly. Sort of like Melisandre, kind of. Sure. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So... I found it interesting that Sansa says in this scene, she goes, and then he kidnapped her and raped her. And sadly, I think Sansa's the next person to get raped in the uh, yeah, true. series. So really that soon, was kind like, of a little, like, like two another, episodes from now. Two episodes. Yeah. Something so like I just kind of made that note that she was disgusted by that. And sadly, that happens to her a couple episodes later. Yeah. Pretty brutal. So Peter has a funny line come. Let's speak somewhere the dead can't hear us, which I thought was funny. And she realizes that he's dressed for riding and she's like, what the fuck? Like, you're leaving me here? He's like, yeah, King's Landing, Cersei sent for me. So that confirms what you had theorized last episode, that the raven from Cersei was summoning him to court. Yeah, yeah, because back in that episode, too, she said... Make sure that Lord Peter Baelish understands the word immediately. Right. Yeah, yeah. That was kind of the clue. Definitely. So, at this point, Baelish goes into his, his like, chess geniosity. <laughs> he's yeah. a master at, at, at this. He, he's figured out Stannis' whole plan and knows he's going to come and try to take Winterfell and that he'll be able to save Sansa and that he'll name her... Um, you know, wardeness of the of the North and everything, and it's just like uh, such a brilliant strategist. As as despicable and horrible as Baelish is, he's really good at at, at like political strategy. And, he's one of the best chess players for sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah i I think he figured it out because I mean he does have his little birds, not as many birds as Varys, but he has his little birds around town too. So. I'm sure he Good was point. aware that Stannis moved his uh, army up to Castle Black to help, you know, defend the wall. Mm -hmm. And maybe he does or does not know the reason why. Uh, but I think he realizes that. You mean about like the White Walkers and stuff? That's yeah. I think they were just, you know, defending from the a, a big band of wildlings and they needed help. And Stannis came to help but i don't think peter baelish really believes in the white walkers just yet probably if ever um but I, I i was wondering when i was taking my notes is did does baelish really know that stannis is, was at the wall when he sent for the marriage proposal to uh the Boltons for Sansa. Oh, like that because, was his way of putting Sansa at Winterfell so Stannis could name her Wardeness? Yes. And like he knew kind of deep down or like that she would maybe have to marry the Bolton boy for a really short amount of time but won't be stuck with the Boltons long. Yeah, yeah, that's Which it, is exactly. why he felt okay sending her up there and saying to her like avenge your you know avenge your family basically right. like telling her you're not going to be up there very long because yeah. stannis is going to come down and 
kick Bolton's ass and name you Wardeness of the North. And then I think in his mind, he's like, and I'm going to marry you and I'm going to rule the North in your name and the Eerie. Right. And I'm going to kiss you now. To, <laughs> yeah. To, and I have that in my notes. The lets, she lets him kiss yeah, her. Yeah. He pauses like as he goes in, he pauses and gives her a chance to retract or stop it. And she doesn't, she doesn't. No. It's probably like a political move on her part to manipulate him. Yeah, I think they're both trying to manipulate each, each other. I think Stannis, or not Stannis, I think Littlefinger is kissing her to try to get her to start fe having feelings for him. Mm -hmm. And I think Sansa is letting him think that because she knows it's never going to happen. Right, yeah, and so that he'll keep uh, working for her and doing stuff for her. Exactly. <laughs> so I think they're both playing each other right now. Yep, it's so funny. So this is, is Baelish's first major miscalculation, uh, thinking Completely. that Stannis will defeat the Boltons, which doesn't happen. And Sansa, I mean, she's already like basically gone when uh, she, she's escaping as the battle's going on, I think, or something. But I mean, she, she meets an unfortunate, you know, she meets with unfortunate circumstances before Stannis even gets there. So everything goes wrong with his plan basically yep. and it ends up i don't think he that's why i don't think he had ramsey in his sights yeah. of being a, a crazy person i think yep. he thought sansa would just have to grit and bear it you know she's gonna have to lose her virginity she's gonna have to get married it's the way the world is in this realm and you know she's gonna have to just he says you know take this this bolton boy as your own you know, I don't think he realized how beaten and abused she was going to be in that short amount of time he was thinking she was going to be with him. Yeah, exactly. Just pretty crazy. So he, he totally fucks up here. He's a betting man, but he bets wrong this time. And uh, it's it plants the seeds that lead to his death, you know, because the way that he leaves her here with Ramsey... It's abandonment. Yeah, and she is not stoked about it. She's really fucking mad about it, and she gets her revenge, basically. Like, as soon as he gives her a reason, she fucking has his throat slit. Yep. So, yeah, crazy. He's uh, he's like, I'll return before too long. You'll be strong without me. And he places his hands on her shoulders. And, uh, and then he places his hand on the back of her head. And... <laughs> and moves in to kiss her and she doesn't stop him hilarious kind of weird yeah yeah and then the north will be yours do you believe me you know and she's like i expect i'll be a married woman by the time you return <laughs> i like his sentiment too when he says and you've learned to to maneuver from the very from the best. very best yes he's giving himself a pat on the back here but i had a glimmer of she's she also learned from cersei Yep. Because we know this in season seven when she said, I learned a great deal from her. So I think he's thinking, oh, she's learned how to maneuver, you know, slimy people, but through me. But I think Cersei's in her mind too, playing Littlefinger and he doesn't even know it. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Great call. And uh, it's just funny. So humble of him, you know, the, the very best he refers right. to himself as and his hubris here and thinking that he's got the perfect plan and making all the right bets uh, ends up being his downfall. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Sansa is his Achilles heel. Yep, totally. Or, yeah, the Stark women in general, I guess. 
or at least you know cat and sansa <laughs> redheads what is it about redheads this episode <laughs> yeah. totally so yeah that pretty much wraps up uh, both of our number fives right um that was my number five and my number one and your number five <laughs> <laughs> so what's your number four my number four is jamie and braun which was just kind of funny okay awesome being captured or just their whole little storyline okay. and their interactions together so uh it starts off with Tyrion getting beat on a boat by Jorah, basically, and then it cuts to Jamie on a boat, which I thought was a cool transition. Yeah, definitely. He's looking off off the the port side, I think it is, and and looking at an island, and he's like, "Is that Estamont? Tarth, Sir Jamie, the Sapphire Isle." And ah, it brings back memories of Brienne for him. Yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Like obviously makes him think about the name, the Sapphire Isle, and how he misconstrued its meaning to lock. But it's really about like the water around it and everything. But he sort of gazes longingly in wonder, imagining what Tarth is like and thinking about Brienne and probably wondering how she's faring on her journey with with the um, oath keeper and the armor that he gave her and just kind of a fun way to um create another little like a reason for him to think about her and another little connection between the two of them like he's seeing her homeland her home you know and makes him think of her it's just kind of cool sure so then it, it's a there's a great transition <laughs> where where braun hurls his kukri into a sack of grain and uh, his kukri the kukri is that that type of blade that he uses the blade mm -hmm. yeah and uh, it, Jamie kind of like watches it fly by and then watches as the grain is spilling out. And he's got this, <laughs> this look sort of on his face. It's like wonder and confusion. You can and tell like, Braun is bored. Yeah. And he's also like, ah, he's pretty good with that fucking blade. I don't think I would. <laughs> that blade kind of freaks <laughs> yeah. me out, I think. You know? <laughs> it's a little bit of a little freaked out by it, kind of maybe. Um, which is comes back later when when he he wakes up and Bron has the kukri raised over his head. It looks like he's about to throw it at Jamie. And he, <laughs> oh yeah, he's like, "What the fuck?" Yeah, he's like, "Oh god!" And like, kind of like jumps to the side. But it's he's probably remembering him throwing that blade into the bag beforehand and how good he is with it. So he's like, "Oh shit, it's happening to me now!" You know? <laughs> yeah, I don't think anyone would want to wake up to that. Yeah, pretty awesome. So uh, there's a little bit of exposition here for the viewers explaining why they're on a merchant ship instead of traveling with the with the sigil out, you know, and obviously they're going there in secret to infiltrate. Dumbest plan ever, as we know. Yes. Backfires royally. Um, so the ship is traveling to Old Town and they're going to like set off in the middle of the night to get to Dorne. They're gonna row they're gonna row to Dorne yeah, well, at night. Well at least Braun's gonna row. <laughs> 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 and uh he's like, Have you ever been to Dorne? And he's saying to Jamie and he's like, No. And he's like, I have. The Dornish are crazy. Yeah. <laughs> All they want to do is fight and fuck, fuck and fight. And uh, I like Jamie's response. You should be happy to go back. Because you know, that's what Bronn's into, This is right? like what you are. Are you Dornish, Bronn? <laughs> yeah. And he's like, well, I kind of think we're going to end up doing all the fighting and then have to leave before the fucking. So, you know, it kind of leaves out half the fun. Because um, we have to kidnap a princess. Right. Yeah. 
It's pretty great. Way to, way to be a cock block, Jamie. Yeah, it's like, well, you know, we're not just kidnapping a princess either. We're, we're rescuing my niece, bringing her back to her family. And Bronn is your like, niece. your niece? Yeah, and Jamie looks up at first like, like he's going to say something like, take it back. But then he sees how like confident Bronn is with his assertion here. Like, by asking your niece, he's saying, your daughter, you know? And he's like... <laughs> I know the fucking truth, man. Like looking at him and uh, instead of Jamie pressing the issue, he totally backs down, totally backs down. Doesn't even say, doesn't even try to argue against it. It, no. seem, it seems like he's okay with Braun knowing. And uh, from a strategic point of view, he probably thinks that Braun knowing the truth may be advantageous for the mission. Braun knowing how important it is to Jamie like what the yeah. stakes are. So I think not saying anything spoke a thousand words to Bronn. Absolutely. And he he may he may suspect that Bronn could know the truth from from Tyrion also cuz his opinion of Tyrion isn't the greatest right now, so he's probably thinking like, "Oh, he's probably divulging all of our secrets, you know, and shit like that." Who True, knows, but right? It's, I mean, it's a secret in the fact that no one can really confirm it 100%, right. it's but it seems secret. pretty it's common knowledge that yeah. I mean, the kids are likely Jamie's. Right. Yeah, it's an open so, secret. <laughs> I mean, anyone on the street could have said that to Jamie, but I think Jamie would have shut them down. Right. Whereas Braun, he's just not going to... Basically, he's pleading no contest. <laughs> yeah. Braun knows all his most damning secrets, like the fact that he can't fight anymore. You know, exactly. And, and, he's, and to, to this part, you know... He's pretty much kept his word to Jamie. So I think Jamie is uneasy that he knows the truth, which is why he doesn't confirm it 100%. But he also is strangely okay with Braun knowing. Right, yeah. Without being told 100%. I would agree. Um, so uh, he's like, I've been, I've been doing this sort of thing a long time. I'm good at it. And Jamie's like, that's why you're here. You know, he's like, but, but why are you here? Why not just send 40 of me or an army? Unlike most folks, you've actually got an army, you know? And I just thought that was super hardcore. Yeah. <laughs> like who has an army, you know, Jamie Lannister. That's fucking bad. Unlike most folks, you actually got one. Yeah. So uh, he's like, well, I, because I don't want to start a war, you know, like I don't, I'm sending an army because we don't want a war here. It's like, it still doesn't explain why you're, you're like what you're doing here you know and he says it has to be me you know and after the last thing like suggesting that marcel is his daughter you know by saying it has to be me jamie's kind of saying like well i'm her fucking dad you know i kind of need to protect her <laughs> but also cersei's kind of making me <laughs> yeah. i'm never gonna get into her pants again if i don't do this mission so right. here i am a one-handed man in dorn we we talked last episode about using psychology to manipulate people like you were talking about using reverse psychology on your two-year-old making <laughs> yeah. people think that that they're making their own decisions um when in fact you're manipulating them into making their decisions so that i, th I think i feel like that's kind of like what cersei did to jamie here she sort of manipulated him into saying that he would go save marcella like you've never done anything to be a father to our children he's like fine i'll go fucking save her you know i'll do it and I also think she wanted him out of King's Landing so she could stack the small council without being judged by Jamie or being told not to do something. As we see happening in this episode when she removes uh, Mace Tyrell from the picture <laughs> and gets called out by Pycelle. Yep. Classically. Um, so 
Bronze, like, uh, if I'm putting something like this together, a one-handed man who happens to be the, one of the most recognizable faces in Westeros, it's like not the most stealth option. And Jamie's like, it has to be me. I think that really confirms for Bronn that Jamie is Marcella's father. Right. Like, he he says it a second time. Right. Like, and then that kind of seals the deal. Exactly. And uh, so Jamie, or Bronn is just like in total, like, digging for truth mode here. Moves on from learning that Jamie is the father of the kids, uh, of the royal kid, quote unquote royal kids, you know, to then asking Jamie the about bastards. Yeah, 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 yeah. To uh, actually, yeah, I guess they'd be royal bastards, kind of. Um, so he moves on to asking about freeing Tyrion, and he's like, "You set your brother free, didn't you? I'll bet your sister didn't like that." And this seems to like trigger the whole like Cersei thing and. Her reaction, look at the consequences, look at the consequences, father's dead, you know. Definitely. And so he, he still kind of lies about this. Varys set him free. And uh, I like uh, Bronn's line, he loves Tyrion, and I was like, well, if you see the wee fucker, give him my regards. And Jamie, fresh off thinking about Cersei, shaming him for letting him go, he's like, he, kind of stewing, he's like, he murdered my father. You know, if I ever see him again, I'll split him in two. And Bronn, who thinks, who who's like, who knows everything in this scene. He knows Jamie let let Tyrion go. He knows that Jamie's the father of the royal bastards. You know, he knows everything in this scene that's going on. But he seems genuinely surprised by Jamie's reaction here, saying that he'll split Tyrion in two. He looks shocked, sitting there and yeah. sort of, uh, yeah, sort of in the way that. That John is shocked when Melisandre says, you know, nothing, John Snow, and walks out and he just kind of sits there. Shocked. Yeah. yeah, sort of the same thing. Uh, Tyrion, Jamie's like, if I ever see him, I'll split him in two and then I'll give him your regards. And Bronn's just like, oh shit. You know, <laughs> like, what the fuck? I like that Jamie uses Varys as a scapegoat here because right. if Varys hadn't have left King's Landing, I don't think he would have been able to do that. Right. Totally. Yeah. He might have gotten busted. Just put the blame on Varys, saying Varys set Tyrion free. Jamie, I think, was fully ready to take responsibility for that to his father. But then Tyrion killed Tywin and it sent him for a loop so he's using Varys as a scapegoat to say I had nothing to do with it basically totally yeah good call so then we move on to the next scene where they <laughs> swim ashore or row ashore and Bronze <laughs> rowing in the darkness and looks to Jamie for help and he just kind of raises his hand like sorry bro you know <laughs> Bronze like fuck how can I row I have one hand <laughs> yeah so then uh, they go to sleep and there's a beautiful shot of this beach and the sun rising over it. And it's just a gorgeous uh, moment of cinematography. And then um, Jamie wakes up t- to Bronn about to throw the kukri at his head or so he thinks hilariously. And uh, Bronn ends up throwing it into a snake, which they eat for breakfast, uh, which is funny. Yeah, that would have been a shit way to die. Yeah, that would have been a shit way to die for sure. Which I find um, interesting because we meet the sand snakes in this episode. Uh, yes, that is good. Good point, yeah. Uh, and this, the sand snakes try to kill them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Um, this part's cool, too, talking about ways to die. And Jamie asks um, Bronn how he would want to die. And Bronn sort of had this conversation with Tyrion earlier in this series. So it's, he's been thinking about it a little bit. Remember... 
what did Tyrion say? Uh, old age with age a woman's mouth around a, my cock. Yeah, <laughs> drunk. <laughs> right. So Tyrion. So that sort of influenced Bronn because Bronn is sort of envisioning the same type of scenario in his own keep, drinking his own wine, watching his own sons grovel for his fortune. Um, and I desperately want Bronn to get his castle. <laughs> you know, me too. That's all I want, but it's not going to happen because uh, this is Germ's way of telling us it ain't going to happen. You know, saying, yeah. picturing dying um, in his own keep with his own wine, with his sons and his fortune. That means now that he's imagined that it's not going to happen. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Damn you, Germ. Damn you. Damn you, Germ. Yeah. So that's disappointing. Uh, <laughs> and Jamie's also disappointed by that vision. He thought that, you know, he'd have more something more exciting planned. And uh, Bronze retort to this was great. I've had an exciting life. I want my death to be boring. <laughs> it's great. I can appreciate that. It's a good line. How disappointing. So, uh... He he has a very another like astute moment here. He's like, "Well, how would you want to go to Jamie?" And he's like, "In the arms of the woman I love." And he's like, "She wants the same thing." You know, and ca- this sort of catches Jamie by surprise. A that he has the audacity to make a remark like this to Jamie, um, although he had asked Bron before, "Did you talk to my brother like this?" <laughs> yeah. So he knows that Bronn's got, he's flippant. He's got like loose tongue. Um, but he, he, his head snaps towards Bronn when he says this. And uh, it just goes to show you again that how, how astute Bronn is. He, he can see that, Jer- that Cersei isn't true to Jamie, And he's, give, he's trying to warn him here as nicely as he can, you know. For sure. So then uh, they're talking about the, the bag of gold that Jamie gave to the ship captain to bribe him not to say anything. And it was Bron, a heavy bag. Yeah, and Bron's like, ah, I don't really think that matters, you know. Now that you're off the ship, he can go ask for another bag of gold to, to turn you in, basically. Um, which we end up learning is true because yep. Obara has the uh, the ship captain buried up to his head in the sand, which is fucking <laughs> hilarious, too. Yes. Another funny moment. Um, so then they hear voices coming or horses, hooves, and they sort of duck behind the thing, behind like a little dune, like some little little like tuft of grass, like Homer's hair, like barely know. anything. You know, like, it's like that's the worst place to hide ever. Yeah. And so uh, the, the guys kind of perfectly stop in the clearing, like right in front of Jamie and Braun and see the tracks and everything. And bronze reaction fucked in the ass <laughs> we're busted you know so he jumps up morning lads glad we found you who are you cooper and this is darnell he's playing the game of faces a little bit here making yeah. up fake identities and everything you're from king's landing accent gave me away flea bottom whelped, whelped and, whipped. and whipped great line and uh, so they say their ship capsized and they managed to swim ashore. And I think they were kind of believable until they brought up the sharks. Yeah. <laughs> and Jamie's like, and he's like, thought the sharks would get us. And Bron looks over at him like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Shut the fuck up. <laughs> I had this like, handled, you know. It's classic. We don't uh, have sharks in Dorne. <laughs> yeah. 
And so he's like, oh, I could have sworn those were shark fins and bronze. Like dolphins, maybe? I don't know. Oh, my God. Uh, Throw your swords in the sand. And bronze classic response. Like every time you, like, get pulled over or something, you don't want to, like, this is, there's no need for this. This isn't necessary. Just point me in the right direction. We'll find our way home. You know? <laughs> and, yeah, uh, right, dude. Yeah. So swords in the sand now. And he shoves his blade into the sand and grabs oh, his kukri part. and launches it. And he's done this on a couple occasions. Um, and uh, one was he didn't follow through with the full launch, but when he was facing off with the hound before the Battle of Blackwater Bay in the tavern, yep. he sort of he slyly yeah, he reaches behind his back and grabs the blade to in preparation to make a similar move. And then I think at the... Um, at the loot train battle, there's a scene where somebody's like riding at him on horseback or something oh, like yeah. that. And he That's launches right. it was the a Dothraki. Yeah, yeah. He launches the Kukri at him there to save himself. And interestingly, who else have we seen throw a blade in a similar fashion to this? Um Why is it escaping me? It's a me. It's Dario. Dario, and he kills the champion of Marine. That's right. I knew we had seen somebody else. I was thinking of Arya, but she actually never throws the knife. Right, she right, just right. says that. Yeah. So okay. we've we've had a lot of comparisons. People speculate that D- that Dario may be uh, Bronn's younger brother, right? Oh, and, and I the, like that theory. The recasting makes them look very similar. But they had talked. You know, Bronn had talked about having a brother and stuff like that before um so i don't know it's just another little little similarity that they have this little knife trick that they throw their blade to uh to you know kill somebody on a horse basically and i mean in in dario's case he killed the horse itself sure but uh you know just a cool little parallel nice. so uh at, before they jump out and reveal themselves Bron's like, how many are there to Jamie? He's like, four. And he's like, how many do you think you could take? And he's like, yeah, one. What if, <laughs> if he's, he's slow? slow? You know, like, why did you bother coming, Jamie? Like, you're useless at this point. Um, so Bron throws the blade at the guy, gets him right in the neck, knocks him off dead off the horse. Second guy comes at Bron and he picks up his blade out of the sand and spins around in a smooth motion to parry the guy's attack and then slices him right off the horse and kills him too. And then the third guy comes at him and uh, the horse rears and and Bron slices his belly, the horse's belly and the rider tumbles off <laughs> and he has a good line to that Jamie. That one should be slow enough. Yeah. <laughs> Such a funny line. Um, and Jamie goes to fight him, and man, whew, it is rough to watch. Jamie yeah, looks so hard. awkward with the fighting left-handed, and his right arm is just like dangling, bent there, and like just so awkwardly. It doesn't look like he knows where to put his arm when he's fighting. It's so funny because I'm left-handed, so watching him even though it's hard to watch because we know how awkward he is with it, it looks more natural for me because I would do it that way. (laughs) I would swing my sword that way. So, but it's like writing your name with your other hand. Yeah. Just like, you'd be able to do that. (laughs) (laughs) But you'd think that like with all the practice that Bron and Jamie have had together, that Bron would be like, okay, don't fucking like hold your goddamn hand like that. It's so weird, you know, like balance yourself with it. Like, like, fencing or you know something do you like, think maybe the gilded steel throws the balance off 
Uh, I mean, they would make it heavier, but I what I what really I think is that it was just poor choreo, poor poor choreography. They're trying to emphasize the fact that Jamie is um, awkward is awkward basically. So they intentionally make it awkward. Whereas in if this was like reality, which it's not. Braun would have given him some tips on this. You know, the stance would be one of the first things that Jamie would have learned in his retraining, essentially. So it's just choreography to emphasize the fact that he's, you know, using his offhand, basically. They're making him look awkward. So For sure. he's getting pummeled. The guy's blasting blade like a, you know, swinging the blade down on him like Brienne was on the bridge. Hacking the shit out of yeah, him. Yeah, just pummeling him. <laughs> into submission and he knocks the blade out of his hand and and jamie's just like rolling around on the ground and shit hilariously and the guy's about to fucking kill him just slicing downward and he reaches up with the golden hand and catches the blade <laughs> and he even surprises himself like he like, like oh my god <laughs> he double takes like oh like looks over at the blade in his hand and then it like he sort of twists the hand because it's stuck in there but he like sort of makes sure it stays stuck by twisting the hand a little bit and he goes and grabs his blade out of the sand and jams it through the guy in spectacular fashion and then kind of turns the guy around and kicks him off of the blade and um i just thought this was a really great piece of stunt work by whoever was playing this uh, this dorn dornish man um he kind of rolls down this sandy slope like six or seven times in just like a perfectly controlled like artistic like awesome like a role, which is just really, really well yeah. done. You know, it was a nicely performed stunt, like almost totally. too perfect. And uh, so Braun comes over the crest and he's like, Let, nice move. James like luck, you know, and it totally was luck. And uh, much as Littlefinger complimented himself saying that, you know, you learned by the best. <laughs> yeah. Braun's like, you had a wonderful teacher giving himself some props. <laughs> which is so funny because... His teaching of Jamie, I mean, we just saw it on display and How it was terrible. terrible. It was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, good point. Um, so they come upon these horses and Bronze like, I always wanted a Dornish stallion. Beasts can run a day and night without tiring. And that's impressive, man. Like that is pretty uh, amazing. Yeah. Are there horses like that in real life that are like um, that good? I would say, yeah, there's like Arabians and thoroughbreds would probably be closest to being able to sustain that. I would say Arabians, most of all, there's a sport called endurance where there's this, actually there's awesome. It's kind of like the Iditarod for horse horseback riding. Um, nice. It's a hundred miles and you basically ride your horse through the wilderness and you go up really steep terrain and really long distances. And you know, you would run them probably a solid 24 hours, I would Damn. say. That's hardcore. I mean, probably not like full speed, but. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, when you're going up a 45 degree sheer granite side of a cliff. That's you know, work. That's a lot of that's work. That's a lot of work. Yeah, so definitely. It's a cool sport. You should check it out. Um, really dangerous. What's it called? Really. It's called endurance. Endurance. Nice. Yeah. That's and color. Arabians are extremely popular for that sport. Yeah, well, that makes sense because uh, these are like the the desert horses, basically yep. down in Dorne. So that would be the parallel that Gurm yep. is drawing here for sure. Yes, and I would, I would, I would have to like reread 
what I when I got this, but if I'm not mistaken, all horses on the planet are descendants from 13 Arabians. Whoa, that's interesting. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's the number. It might be 16 or 19 or something like that. But wow, it's, that's really cool. It's under 20. Um, so talk about a bottlenecked population. Yeah, every breed of horse has some type of Arabian beginnings, but you have to go. It's like dogs. I mean, they right. you breed, you breed them, but they all stem from that part of the world for sure. Nice. So, so they're gonna ride to the water gardens with the nice breeze in their faces. But first, Jamie says, <laughs> we need to bury these bodies. And Bron <laughs> is like, birds have to eat too, you know? Like, what the fuck? But Jamie's like, no, 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 no. Corpses raise questions. And questions, questions raise, raise armies. armies. <laughs> <laughs> and we're not here to start a war. And Bron, <laughs> do you know how long it'll take us to dig all these holes? Us? <laughs> and Jamie's like, well, yeah, but... But I can't dig very well with one hand. Not yeah, at all, really. <laughs> so you know how long it's going to take you? <laughs> Twice as long as it would have taken us. And Bron is just his, his face just drops again hilariously. For sure. Which is so funny. That's pretty much it for my, for my number four. <laughs> What'd you You're got? so funny. Okay, well, my number four is perfect timing, which is the sand snakes. perfect timing because we just got off it's the next scene oh oh okay sorry <laughs> you're yes. like perfect timing yes. for what <laughs> yeah 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 i uh, i thought like yeah yeah I don't perfect timing know. because the next scene is alaria riding that gorgeous horse on the beach oh my god what a shot right oh man oh god i just i've galloped horses on the beaches like that before i know what it feels like that horse is stunning the color of it is called a dun. It's like a palomino type color with a black mane and tail. Ugh. They're not they're not super um like common. I mean they're common enough, but they're not a common color. And they can be quite stunning with her garb that she had oh, yeah. on. Flapping she in the looked, breeze. Oh my god. I loved it. And I loved it. You couldn't that tell scene. who she was. Yeah, I thought it was amazing too. I have down that uh that was just a gorgeous shot. Yeah, Beautiful. And the sound. Oh my goodness. I, I wrote in my notes, I want to be Ilaria Sand riding this horse <laughs> on the beach. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, like you said, this is our introduction to the Sand Snakes. Yes. So we meet Tyene, Obara, and Nim. Lady Nim. <laughs> yes. Which Lady is your Nim. favorite of these <laughs> characters? I honestly, I kind of like Obara. <laughs> Oh, interesting, interesting. Because she most reminds me of Oberyn. Interesting. She as, looked very much, very similar to Ilaria in this scene as well. Yeah, I, I just like her attitude about, and we'll get into this, you know, she, she's always been on the side of her father. You know, I made my decision a long time ago. She wields the spear like her father, I like how she's kind of the tomboy of the two of them, I guess you would say, because we know that right, Tyene, right. Tyene is Illyria's um, actual daughter. Nim and Obara are actually uh, Prince Oberyn's bastards from other women. Ah. 
but they all kind of come together because as we've come to know that Dorne is pretty open with these affairs. I mean, Alaria clearly has seen Oberyn having sex with other women. Oh yeah, super poly. This shouldn't come as any surprise that he has other daughters with other women. In fact, he has eight daughters because right. he tells that to Cersei. So this is only three of the eight. I think there's even more in the books too. And so we know that Alaria only has one of his biological children. And I think being that Alaria is um Tyene's mother she tends to be a little bit more meek and waiting to decide what her mom's gonna do she's always gonna side with her mom mm. Nim is kind of girly still she has like the long pretty hair she cracks she has the whip as her weapon which I love <laughs> whip girl <laughs> the whip girl mm. and so I like out of the three of them I like Obara the best because I think she closely resembles O Oberyn's passion for fighting and tradition. Nice. Well, I'm with Bronn on this one. I like Tyene. Yes. I think she's pretty pretty. She's pretty damn pretty. But I think from a character development <laughs> perspective, not just a booby perspective. By any boobs necessary. <laughs> yeah. Boobies. I was referencing that Honest trailer where um, they're talking about the show where HBO tries to keep your attention by any boobs necessary. <laughs> boobs. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I like, I like the Sand Snakes because um, while they're against their uncle, um, you know, they have a really simple reason for doing what they're doing. They have... They have a different view of the situation and it's really uncomplicated compared to Prince Doran's. You know, it's they their father died. They think he died, you know, wrongfully and they're going to get revenge. And that's it. That's yep. simple. <laughs> they don't have to worry about the implications of an entire nation and starting a war with the Lannisters. So, right. I, I like that they're passionate about, you know, avenging their father, but it's a stark contrast to someone like Prince Duran, who has the entire nation to be concerned about. Definitely. And I, I think that, you know, obviously a lot of people were pretty disappointed with the, the way the Sand Snakes turned out on the TV show because they're just so cool in the books, you know, that people sort of had high expectations, uh, which is understandable considering how well everything else is done on the show. But um, I'm trying to like keep my mind open for the rewatch and pick out positive things, you know? Yeah. So as a book reader, were you disappointed in how they were kind of portrayed in the show versus the books? Yeah. I haven't gotten to yeah, them definitely, yet. Definitely. That's mm -hmm. too bad. Cause I think they are cool characters and they're way cooler in the books. If you think they're, if you think they're cool on the show, they're, they're like, really cool in the books i know that um next season or ne not next season next episode when jamie actually tries to extract marcella out of the water gardens um people i knew that people were super disappointed in that fight scene because they're supposed to be like really experienced fighters and it was just right, like yeah, kind like of poorly choreographed but little mini i did Oberyns. read online that where they shot that i believe it was in spain it was actually yep. at like a a um, palace basically it was at a palace that couldn't be completely closed down 
So they were allowed like eight hours to close it down completely to shoot. So they were under like major time constraints as Damn, well. Damn, I didn't know that. So yeah, it wasn't, it, it, they had a really short amount of time at the palace and they only had like eight hours to shoot that scene. So the choreographed moves and stuff, they just couldn't get them perfected. Like I remember reading an article with um, Gwendolyn Christie and that, that scene where her and Jamie are fighting on the bridge. Mm -hmm. And that was like 40 hours of choreographed filming to Damn. get that like 10, you know, five, five minute scene. So I think, unfortunately, their choice of location impacted the way the Sand Snakes came off in the show. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Because they just didn't have time to rehearse, enough time to rehearse on set, and they had a very short amount of time to film it. There's also like little like character stuff, though, like um, the way they're like playing the hand slapping game and stuff. Oh, and yeah, like, like they would never do that yeah, in the books. Yeah, <laughs> the books, they never do that shit. <laughs> uh, it's just so funny. But, That's yeah, too yeah. Bad. Yeah, it's all good, you know. Like they, they work with what they got, you know, and they, they had to condense a whole bunch of storylines into a really short amount of time, and they did it the best they could, so it's yeah, fine. Yeah, so, I mean, it's gonna there's going to be really strong parts and some kind of weak links, but, I mean, the weak links of the show are some of other shows on TV's, like, strongest Parts, so. yeah exactly we're, we're talking it's about like, weak links here it's we're <laughs> we're really kind yeah. of pulling it apart farther yeah. than it needs to to go definitely i agree with that because i i personally have not gotten to them in the books yet and i enjoyed their storyline without knowing as like a first-time viewer without knowing the disappointment that came with them so from a non-book reader nice well i'm looking forward to hearing what you think when you get to them in the books yeah, I know. If I can ever find a moment to sit back down and read. Right. Oh, I miss it. Um, but yeah, so we get their kind of dynamic here. And Obara goes, will it be war? Alaria, Prince Dorian will weep for your father, but nothing else. We must avenge Oberyn ourselves. And I loved that because, like I just yep. said, it, it's about vengeance and there's nothing else to really worry about. She goes, Obara goes, without Duran, we have no army to march against the Lannisters. We don't need an army to start a war. Queen Cersei loves her children, and we have one of them. <laughs> Just for the record, I'm wondering, does your script have, does it say who said what line on it? Yeah. Oh, nice. Mine don't. I need yours. Like, oh, really? Yeah, oh, wherever yeah. you get them. Oh, how funny. They, they name her Nymeria in this. <laughs> oh, yeah. Lady Nim is short for Nim. Nymeria. Oh, it is. Okay, so her name is Nymeria. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, Nymeria. Huh, I didn't know that. I thought her name was just Nim. <laughs> That's just what they call her. Well, Nymeria famously sailed to Dorne, I believe. Oh. Um, Nymeria's journey. Like the actual Nymeria, not the not the wolf, you know. That's crazy because I made the connection that Arya would love Dorne. Oh, interesting. Because I'm skipping ahead a little bit, um, but Obara, when she's talking about being a child and Oberyn took her to court and I'd never met him, but he called himself my father. 
My mom said I was too young, a girl, and Oberyn tossed a spear at my feet and said, girl or boy, we fight our battles. Right. Yeah, I think that, um, speaking of, of Arya and, uh, and Nymeria and Dorne, so Nymeria was a princess of the Roinar, and after the Roin was conquered by Valyria, Nymeria led the Roinar to Dorne, where she took Lord Mors Martell as her husband. And uh, House Martell has ruled Dorne ever since. So Nymeria is known as like a, a, a like a leader warrior woman who led a whole nation essentially. And um, the the way that they design the Arya character is sort of paralleling her like uh, fighter spirit, basically, and going on these large journeys. And which is why she names her wolf Nymeria. Right. Yeah. So got it. Yeah, exactly. So they're they're intentionally drawing a comparison. So it makes sense that you would associate Arya with liking Dorne because that's where like the original Nymeria went. And this Nymeria is uh, um, definitely named after that original Nymeria as well. So just a little bit of history there for you. That's crazy. Yeah. No, that actually just kind of ties my number four kind of all together because I just felt like Arya would love living in Dorne because they're kind of powered by women and that whole story of what you just talked about with Nymeria makes total sense yeah yeah totally yeah so um i would say that's you know basically it i i loved obara when she said i made my choice long ago and then splat yeah pointed at my spear and pointed at her tears i was not expecting that the first time (laughs) Um, I watched it. <laughs> so funny. She makes like a little ah! when she throws it too. <laughs> yeah, and it's pretty gory. And the first time I watched, because I, I told you, I tried to avoid the gore when right. I first watched oh, this. Oh, yeah, I couldn't miss that one. So I was totally not expecting that to happen. And when it happened, I was like, oh my God. Oh my God, <laughs> my eyes. <laughs> Hilarious. Yeah, so I would say that that wraps up my number four. Awesome. What is your number three? Oh, it's a sad day in Gotham. With the death Buried. of Batman. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Danny and Barristan are atop the pyramid, and we have a fun, nostalgic moment reminiscing about Rhaegar and his good heart, like we talked about before. Singing to the people, you know, being with the people getting donate donations for playing, seeing how much he could get, but giving them away. And we learned that he was good at playing the harp and singing too. And, um, Barristan is kind of surprised that Viserys didn't tell, um, Danny that. And she tells him that, you know, he told me Rhaegar was good at killing people. Oh, funnily. Also, I liked how Barristan said that he would go along with him and make sure no one killed him, <laughs> which <Yeah>. is cool <laughs> and collected the money. So, Viserys told her that Rhaegar was good at killing people, and Barristan tells her, well, Rhaegar never liked killing people. He loved singing, and uh, I thought this was interesting because Rhaegar, much like his son, Jon Snow, takes no pleasure in killing. And this is also a very Stark-like quality. This gives us an insight into why, throughout all of Ned's point of view chapters in A Game of Thrones, Ned never has a single negative thought about Rhaegar. It seems they're sort of like kindred spirits, both men of moral character, you could say. And so, 
Ned, like we talked about last episode, out of all the high lords and everything, um, like the Hound said, your father was a killer. We're all killers. We love killing, you know. Ned and the the Starks, out of everybody, probably like killing the least, you know, at least of all like the major players. Um, So it makes sense that Lyanna would appreciate Rhaegar um, and he's he's very similar, you know, he's got sort of Stark-like values. For a Targaryen, he's very Stark-like. But yeah, there's just some cool like comparisons here between Jon and Rhaegar. They're, They're both... They, neither of them take pleasure in killing. John is described as being mopey, you know, and Rhaegar is described as being melancholy. And so they're both like some kind of sad, introspective people who are both really good fighters, um, but also are sort of philosophical in, in certain way. You know, Rhaegar more so, but John gets, you know, he gets a little philosophical sometimes. For sure. He gets a little bit broody. Yeah, broody, and yeah, that's definitely the way Rhaegar was, too, big time. He would express his brooding in songs that would make you weep. I'll brood with you, John. <laughs> <laughs> um, John and Rhaegar were also both born in tragic circumstances that haunt them for the rest of their lives. Rhaegar being born during the tragedy at Summerhall as the fire raged and killed King Aegon and Sir Duncan the Tall, among other people as well. He would return to Summerhall at least once a year, I believe, to write sad songs amidst the ruins. Whereas John was born as his mother died at the tragedy that occurred at the Tower of Joy, where Sir Arthur Dane died, and etc. And uh, this haunts him as well, as he wonders about his mother and broods. <laughs> so there's a lot, um, a lot of similar things about these two characters that have affected their psychology. So uh, they, you know, have some laughs about Rhaegar and. He went and talk about what he what would he do with the money? You know, one time he gave it to the next minstrel down the the street. Another time he gave it to an orphanage in Flea Bottom. One time they got horribly drunk, and uh, it's so it's it's nice for Danny to get a chance to like get some insight into her brother because she didn't really get any of that with Viserys. No, not at all. Not at least the nuanced perspective that she's getting from Barristan. So it's cool, but it's also sad because. This is going to be her last opportunity to learn about her family from Barristan, right? Oh, I'm so sad. Yeah, it's sad. It's her last opportunity to get to know Rhaegar a little better until she gets the opportunity to meet his son. Where they just go to town on each other. (laughs) Hilarious. But yeah, it's just kind of cool, you know. Oh, remember how... um, one of the 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 lines in the first season when they're trying to dis- discover the lineage of like of, or the reason why John Aaron got killed and his last dying words were the seed is strong you know talking about Lannister seed yeah. and like blonde children we get yeah. sort of the reverse here with the Stark seed being strong whereas Targaryens typically are. Silvery blonde, yeah, like silvery uh, hair, basically. Um, apparently, Lyanna's Stark's seed was strong because um, John has black hair. You know, that's he's got more of a Stark look to him. Which is interesting too, because Catelyn's children 
with the exception of Arya, if I'm not mistaken, all have kind of reddish hair. Yeah, they have yeah, sort so of a the Tully Tully's look. seed is stronger than the Stark seed in that instance, but the Stark seed is stronger than the Targaryen seed in John's instance. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of cool. Well, it is genetics are a weird thing for sure because I'm kind of blonde with blue eyes and my husband's dark hair, dark eyes, and our son. He looks like my husband, but he has my coloring. <laughs> That's neat. <laughs> it's, it's kind of fun. Um, but his eyes are not the same color as mine. They're actually, you know what's funny? Is they're actually the same color as Amelia Clark's. They're the blue on the outside with the brown in the middle. Oh, cool. Yeah, so they are they tend to change colors Mine change like, too, from blue to green. Mine are always blue. No matter what I wear, no matter what type of day it is outside, they're always blue. Hmm. But Justin's, they change. Interesting. They change every day. So we learn that his dar Zolorak is waiting. His and dar. He's fucking obsessed with those fighting pits. I was <laughs> it's like ridiculous. Say he can't let it go. Yeah. He can't let it go. Let it go. <laughs> yeah, that's the harpy's tactic to get Danny surrounded, I guess, you know, so they need somebody pushing it. Um and uh so Barristan is like, I can, I can, you know, stay if you want or whatever. And Dario's like, I can stay and protect you from his dar. And Danny has, has kind of a funny line. I think I can protect me from his dar Zolorak. Yeah. <laughs> Hilariously. That's so funny. And then she tells Barristan, go, Sir Barristan, sing a song for me. Oh. And it's, it's, it's so song. obvious. Yeah. It's so obvious in retrospect that this is the last time they're going to see each other. You know? Yeah. Because it, he's having a happy memory. Right. Exactly. And you're not allowed to do that. Not on Game of Thrones. Yeah. Not in Planetos. Not in Westeros. Uh, so Barristan's off. And, uh, you know, we never, she never gets to see him again, at least not living. Um, so yeah, that's really sad, sad moment. Not but living. Is... I like how you put that in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, he never gets to see her again. She gets to see him again, but he's dead. So she gets to see his corpse. Um, but yeah, just kind of a, you know, cool scene. So we get to see his dar and he's freaking out about the fighting pits and uh, there's nothing, not really too much to say here, except that it's probably a tactic to try to get Danny in a place where they can plan to try to assassinate her. That's what I'm thinking this time around. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to decide for me because he's so surprised when it happens. Well, his dar may not necessarily have any idea. He may not be in on the plan, you know, but as a representative for for them there, he must be getting a lot of pressure to push for this. Yes, I know? agree with that for sure. I don't think he really knows the, the full plan. Yeah. Yeah. Although he does make a good point here. He goes, traditions are what hold, you know, are the only thing that's holding on the city together. Without them, former slaves and former masters have nothing in common. Nothing but centuries of mistrust and resentment. Mm, true. I can't promise this is the answer to all of our problems, but it's a start. And I think this is really true because it's the one thing, these fighting pits, whether they were freedmen or slaves fighting in them, that was kind of common between the masters and the slaves. And in this new world where there's no hierarchy or structure at all, like... 
it might be wise to put something into place that they can both relate over to avoid civil war. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly desirable from the perspective of the masters who might get wiped out. <laughs> True. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I, yeah, I get what you're saying. To prevent everybody from just killing each other. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, like he said, though, Create some I, type of it's bridge. not going to answer all of the problems, but it's a start. It's a start to try to mend and move forward in this new world that Danny's right. created. So then it cuts to the whore who helped kill White Rat. Is his name White Rat? Yes. And the Sons of Harpy attack and are just creating chaos all over the place and uh, killing all these guys. And the Unsullied hear the chaos and go to respond. And the, the lying whore, as Tyrion would have said, points them in a direction to go and sets them up to be ambushed. The bitch. And uh, unfortunately, they've got spears and they're going into close quarters. So that's not a yeah, great... Yeah, I noted that too. Most of the Sons of the Harpy had knives. Some of them had swords, but most of them had knives. Yeah, Bronn would not have been stoked about this tactical decision of using spears in like narrow alleyways and stuff like this so gray worm and his and friends gray worm and friends <laughs> they go in there and get surrounded and barristan oh first chaos ensues and they're fighting all over the place and dudes unsullied are getting cut down and uh barristan hears the chaos from out in the street and all these people are running away but he draws his sword lightning fast and starts heading towards the uh, the madness like like a true badass and I'm like, fuck, Barristan is so goddamn cool. Batman. Yeah. There's bells. There he goes. And this fucking sucks so much. Like, I love the Barristan character, man. I really, really like Barristan Selmy. Ah, so it's really just, you know, depressing to lose him. When it first happened and him and Grey Worm are laying there, my husband and I looked at each other. We were like, one of them's not getting up. Mm. And we were like, who's it going to be? Right. You know, we were talking about like, well, it could be Barristan because that would be more of a shock value, but it could also be Grey Worm because he's the basically the commander of her army and that would be a huge loss in itself. And it could have thrown Missandei for a loop and like made her get all be all fucked up for a while, which would throw off Danny's game. I can't remember who I originally picked. I think I thought Grey Worm wasn't going to get up, but I'm pretty sure my husband said that Barristan wasn't going get, to get up. So. Damn. It's like, I don't know. <laughs> uh, he was right. Yeah. So they're fighting and Grey Worm gets stabbed. And I'm like, yeah. oh, shit. And then it's like all the Unsullied are dead and it's just Grey Worm against like fucking 10 guys. Just totally surrounded. And he's like spinning around, fighting them off one by one, killing them with a spear, parrying attacks with a, with a spear and the shield and all of a sudden all the the sons of the harpies turn and look as batman enters from the other <laughs> side of the room and na, drops na, 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 one na, na, guy na, 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 na. <laughs> yeah barristan and uh and so then they sort of split in two and gray worm is fighting like six guys and barristan is fighting like six or seven guys and uh the music intensifies and as barristan just fucking shines for a minute here just cutting down foes left and right with 
massive speed and the ferocity of a viper. And uh, we get to finally see at least a moment of what was alluded to all the way back in season one when he gets stripped of his of his white cloak and uh he as he pulls his blade out some of the the rest of the king's guard that are standing there all like sort of pull their swords because they think that he's gonna like rush the king or something and he's like even now i could cut through the five of you like so much butter <laughs> a great line and uh, we get Carving to see a him cake. yeah we get to see him doing that here with the sons of the harpy just slashing left and right and moving so fast and agilely agilely for a man of his age um just really really cool barristan's the man uh sucks that he dies it's fucking sucks yeah so gray worm is struggling to fend off all these guys on the other end and barristan gets kicked from behind and gets slashed across the leg and then stabbed right through the like the the solar plexus area it looked like and uh, the harpy gets up behind him and is just about to slit his throat and Grey Worm apparently finished off the rest of those guys. That didn't sound good. Killed the rest of those guys <laughs> and came over and, and ices this uh, wax, <laughs> wax, ices this guy behind. Uh, what do you want me to do? Whack a guy? Off a guy? Whack off a guy? Because I'm married. <laughs> Kills the, the, the sons of the harpy guy behind Barristan. The guy drops and Barristan drops and Great worm, gray worm desperately struggles to try to administer aid to Barristan, but he's just too badly injured. And Barristan, yeah, Barristan is unconscious already, and Gray Worm collapses in a heap next to him in a pool of expanding blood. And uh, just a heartbreaking scene, seeing two two people who we love so much, and Danny's too closest rider dies basically i mean who who's been around longer barristan or dario um barristan all right then yeah her two closest rider dies are not riding here (laughs) you know they're dying yeah because barristan comes into play right after karth and we don't see we see barristan and danny looking over at the second sons and jorah and that's when she goes, you know, men that fight for gold can't afford to lose to a girl. She says uh, that to Barristan. Right, right. Good call. Um, yeah. And Barristan is in um, Astapor when she get or Young Kai. What is it? Astapor or Young Kai where she gets the Unsullied? Um, Astapor. Yeah, yeah. Barristan is in Astapor as well because he's yep. like like questioning her decision to give up the dragon with Jorah. Yeah. <laughs> and she scolds both of them. She's like, you undermine me again and I'm going to whack you. Mm-hmm. So funny, funny. I, I, I noticed a pretty glaring continuity error in this scene. I saw that you posted it on the Facebook page. <laughs> Did you watch it? Yeah. Oh Isn't my God. Hilarious? The sons of the harpy disappear. Yeah. So the shot where it's like, kind of close it's tight in on like barristan as as uh, gray worm leans in and tries to help him and gray worm collapses backwards onto his back and his head sort of rests up against the hip of this dead son of the harpy that's lying behind him with a golden mask and everything 
and then the the shot cuts to an overhead view and all of a sudden the guy who <laughs> the guy who gray worm is leaning against is just gone entirely and gray worm is like lying two feet further away he from Paris than that he even was for work <laughs> yeah it must have so uh just a little that that's probably the most clumsy continuity error from the whole show I mean, I've never, I've, I've never picked up on anything that that major in no, terms of continuity no, errors. Not at all. Amazed that that made it to the final cut. Yeah, um, it. I mean, I've watched this series so many times. I've never caught it, so it's a continuity <laughs> error. But it's obviously one that isn't all that glaring. But now that you showed that video on Facebook, I was like, oh my god. <laughs> The disappearing harpy. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny. So yeah, awesome. I just thought that was a pretty funny little thing. And then um Yeah, they they must have just taken two shots from two entirely different filming days or something, because otherwise you'd remember like like the, the the actor playing Grey Worm would have rem- remembered like, oh my head was like lying against this guy when I was lying there dead. You'd think. Yeah. But that sums up my number three. Okay. How about you? What's your My number, number three tres? was Batman's Farewell. So oh, same thing. Anything else you want to thing. add then? No, I think we covered it in pretty good detail. All right. So what's your number two? My number two is Princess Shireen of the House Baratheon. Okay. Shireen comes to visit Stannis and um, <laughs> he asks her if she's lonely and she says, just bored. And he says, my father used to tell me that boredom indicates a lack of inner resources. And she sort of boldly here says, oh, were you bored a lot too? You were bored too. (laughs) You lacked inner resources. And I was like, oh, you set yourself up for that one, Stannis. Yeah. Wisdom from the mouths of babes as it foreshadows like kind of Stannis's shortcomings, his failures to come. You know, I don't know. His lack of lack of something. Just lack. You know, he lacks... uh, whatever it takes to win at Winterfell, I guess. So then uh, she brings up how she thought that she was going to be left at home because her cruel mother, Celise, told her that I don't want to bring you. (laughs) And uh, whereas Melisandre stood up for Shireen previously in this episode for darker reasons, you could say, uh, Stannis is oblivious to the upcoming murder plot, basically. And so he, he... sticks to his traditional guns of actually standing up for Shireen here. And he's, he tells her, you know, she shouldn't have said that. She's such a bitch, basically. <laughs> he he doesn't really like Selyse, it seems. No, he goes, why do you say that? And Shireen goes, she told me, I don't yeah, want I to don't bring want you. To be. And that's what he says. <laughs> yeah, she shouldn't have said that. So uh, obviously things like this have a negative effect on your on little like the psychology of little kids you know so she asks him kind of like a difficult question i imagine as a father to have your child ask you are you ashamed of me father (laughs) you know and i know it's so so just you know sad i have my notes to just says heartbreak exclamation point and, uh, it's so crazy, though, because it's like this is such an odd scene for Stannis from what we've seen of him. Right. And it's like for him to be a fatherly figure in this entire series is a hard pill to swallow. But this scene is essential to show the audience that he does love his daughter. And it makes that, that sacrifice. Her death, yeah, Ugh. her sacrifice more 
realistic from Stannis's perspective. Right. Um, how or more impactful, it was. at least. Yeah. Yeah. So he he goes on to tell the story of how when she was an infant, the Dornish trader landed on Dragonstone and gave them or he convinced Stannis to purchase a doll that had been contaminated, um, basically. And uh, she, he's like, I still remember how you smiled when I put that doll in your cradle. And Shireen, hearing that, sort of smiles at, at the thought. And then he says, how you pressed it to your cheek. And hinting, like, that's how you got the grayscale and her smile, like, fades a little bit, you know. So he says, by the time we burned the doll, it was too late. I was told you would die. Or worse, the grayscale would go slow. And we, we know what happens when the grayscale goes slow. Like we see in... Turn into animals. Soon, yeah. We, we see it in the... Uh, lots of grayscale, grayscale stuff approaching the reveal of the stone men. Yes. Know, leading up to that. They're priming us for that. So um, another heartbreaking concept for a father to be thinking of. Um, or worse, the grayscale would go slow let you grow just enough to know the world before taking it away from you. <laughs> it's just so, so brutal. And everyone advised me to send you to the ruins of Valyria to live out your short life with the stone men before the sickness spread through the castle, foreshadowing what we see with uh, Jorah and Tyrion coming up. And Shireen sort of gulps after hearing that, like, you know, like kind of like a nervous swallow, you know? Yeah, like, oh and my God. there's sort of a pause, and he's, he turns towards her, because he'd been sort of facing the other direction when he was saying this. Yeah. And he turns toward her, I told them all to go to hell. I love and, that. And her reaction, she smiles, um, and sweet music starts playing. I called in every maester on this side of the world, every healer, every apothecary. They stopped the disease and saved your life. I wonder how they stopped it. Yeah, I, I know. That'd be interesting to find out. Because it, it's not the same method that Sam used on Jorah. Right. Because he removed it. And yeah. she still has it on her face. Yep. Yeah, I'd be very interested to find out. So he goes on, because you know, like, they, they stopped the disease and you save your life, and he's rationalizing his decision to call in all these maesters. He says, because you did not belong across the world with the bloody stone men. You are the Princess Shireen of House Baratheon, and you are my daughter. And I just thought that was so fucking epic. Like, just like, you are the Princess Shireen of House Baratheon line. I always love that. Yeah. So cool. And I, I, I swear that, Stannis's betrayal of Shireen is his downfall. It's, oh, 100%. It's his total derailment from his otherwise generally righteous path, you know, <laughs> yeah. aside from the shadow demon, the kinslaying and whatnot. <laughs> um, yes. But I also feel like the, the, the killing of Shireen to try to preserve his army is a symbolic, a metaphoric representation of the idea that I've been talking about on previous episodes, which is individualism versus collectivism. Mm-hmm. And the the murder of Shireen, it's you know, it's 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 the death of the individual. It's the sacrifice of the individual and the collective taking precedent. And um, it 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 sort of mirrors when 
when Stannis asks, what's the life of one bastard boy compared to a kingdom? And Davos says, everything. And that's the same thing. Like, he, he should have learned that lesson from Davos. You can't sacrifice the individual to for the benefit, benefit of the collective. This shows, you know, the death of Shireen backfiring in such a, like, magnificent fashion, leading to the whole army getting slaughtered. It shows you how if you if you sacrifice the individual, you sacrifice the collective. You know, it doesn't work it's that so you true. sacrifice the individual to to save the collective. The collective is individuals. So if you if like you sacrifice the individual, you kill the essence of the collective. Like I said, and that's exactly what happens. Shireen dies, and it results in the whole army being slaughtered. No, it's it's great. It's a great. You you say it so well. It's perfectly said. Like, so yeah, just it shows how it's a visual representation of how giving in to collectivism and sacrificing the individual leads to karmic ruin. Um, totally, I uh, love karma. She's such a bitch. <laughs> At least it's karmic ruin in his case. Otherwise, it could be you know what, spiritual yeah. ruin or whatever. But um, it's just a really really powerful scene and. At this point, after he says, and you're my daughter. This is as close as Stannis gets to being loving and sentimental. <laughs> and it's so awkward. That awkward hug at the end. Yeah, Shireen runs up and hugs him. She has big old crocodile tears in her eyes. And yep. he's like, oh, what's touching me? <laughs> and his arms are just stiff as boards at his side. And it takes a couple seconds for him to like realize, oh, this is... Oh, I need to hug What humans her do would be to raise my arms and reach them around my daughter. So <laughs> and give he, her a little pat on the back. Yep. It's so funny. So he this is the the closest we see Stannis to being a loving father. And uh it's just a really beautiful beautiful moment between the two of it them. It is. It's beautiful, but it's also heart wrenching because yeah, you know, it's, you know it's gonna happen and it it just it just you know, is what he ends up decide deciding to do in the future is just that much more awful after having stood up for her her, her whole life uh, just to betray her. I am not looking forward to that scene. Yeah, definitely. I usually don't watch it. Yeah, I don't blame you. I don't even listen to it. I just like lightning bolt through the. <laughs> I never, forward. I never miss a single frame. I have to watch everything. I torture myself. But uh, I totally understand <laughs> not wanting For to watch it. For the rewatch, I'll do it. But like in my own For the leisure rewatch. of watching the show. For the rewatch. <laughs> That's uh, going to be my new saying. Because yeah. <laughs> I say that all the time. I'm like, I can't watch this episode. I can't watch this episode. Yeah. Whenever I say that, I'll be like, for the, re the rewatch. We'll have to start making Facebook posts about like, for the rewatch. <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah, that that's that's it for my number two. Okay. Well, you, what do cool. you got? My number two is the adventures of Tyrion and Jorah. Because I nice. love these two together. I love the journey that they're going to be on for the next few episodes together. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of the start of that relationship. So while it's not like the most show propelling scene from a strategy or story perspective, I felt it was important to add to my number my top five because it essentially gets Tyrion to Danny. Mm -hmm. And of course, any scenes with Tyrion in it are always fun to watch. Oh yeah. 
<laughs> so Tyrion is gagged here, and he's blah, 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 before blah, that blah. though. Before that, <laughs> Jorah steals a boat from that poor guy. Oh yeah, <laughs> and he puts some silver on his chest. Yeah, if, but that guy's gonna be knocked out for like twenty minutes. Somebody could at least, you know, somebody could just walk too. by and steal that. Someone's at least put it in his pocket. The, yeah. So yeah, so we're oh, on the boat, and he throws Tyrion into the boat too. Just fucking tosses him right in. Yeah, like a potato sack. Oh, it looked so painful. Yeah. And Tyrion's sitting <laughs> over there, like, trying to get his knife free, like, you know, getting his ropes free on the knife. Struggling hard, too. He's like, fuck. He wasn't, he didn't even make a dent in that rope, either. Mm-mm. So, yeah, so now we get them on the boat. Tyrion's being all annoying, and Jorah finally ungags him, and he goes, thank you. <laughs> Who are you? And Jorah goes, your captor. Do you have wine? <laughs> Jorah's like, no. I can't sleep without wine. Jorah goes, then stay awake. He's like, I don't fucking care. Um, and Tyrion makes the, the point. You're going the wrong way. My sister's in Westeros. Westeros is west. We are <laughs> Westeros heading east. Is west. <laughs> and I find it funny here because technically Cersei is not the queen anymore. Right, right. So Tyrion... Did Tyrion escape? Oh, that's why. I, I'm pretty sure Tyrion escaped King's Landing before Tom and got married. Oh, yeah. He got married uh, last episode or this episode yeah, or something. Yeah. So, last episode, yeah. So Tyrion is still under the impression that Cersei is queen. That's... Yeah. Well, okay. she's still she would have been queen mother, technically. But she's like acting queen, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, Jorah clearly knows who he is. He goes, I'm not taking you to your sister. And Jorah's like, I'm taking you to Queen Daenerys. And Tyrion she's, just has to laugh. <laughs> she's like, well, what a waste of a good kidnapping. It so happens I was heading there myself. <laughs> yeah, like, we could have just talked to this out. <laughs> yeah. And Jorah goes, what business would you have with the queen? Gold and glory. Oh, and oh, hate. and hate. <laughs> if you'd ever met my sister, you'd understand. <laughs> yeah, so he makes a good point. So now it's clear that we're both on the same side. <laughs> yeah, hilarious. Um, you know, he's trying to figure out who Jorah is, and he goes, a high-born knight from the north of Westeros, down on his luck in Essos, dragon epaulets, bare sigil breastplate. You're Jorah Mormont. <laughs> intellect just shining he's such a fucking genius oh man. i know i was curious how he knew that he was from the north was probably, it his probably accent? By his accent yeah okay yeah but yeah so they have like their cute little banter and again his um intellect kicks in and he goes like why would the queen have sent you away oh wait you were spying on her weren't you yeah it's all coming back to me i was drunk through most of the small council meetings <laughs> But it's all coming back. <laughs> <laughs> and she, he goes, Tyrion goes, she found out, didn't she? Yeah. Found out and exiled you. And now you hope to win back her favor with a gift. A risky scheme. Um, one might even say desperate. <laughs> and the whole time, Jorah's just looking more and more upset. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because then he punches him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right after the next line. You think Daenerys will execute me and pardon you? I'd say the reverse is just as likely. And he decides he's had enough. 
And yeah. what, what kind of slap is it? Imp slap! Oh. <laughs> Slaps the <laughs> shit out of him. Freaking decks him across the face. Oh, yeah. And he's out cold, I think. And Jorah just goes back to the tiller or to the, <laughs> to the uh, steering device. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a short number two, but I find it's really important from the development of Danny and getting Tyrion over to her. And also, I really enjoy their travels together, especially next totally. episode when they go through Valeria. I'm really excited to talk about that. Yeah, that's going to be awesome. It's always one of the best. Yeah. So um, that was it for my number two. So what's your number one? My number one is Tommen the Limp. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> we already got the scene. We haven't talked about it yet. We'll talk about it a little later where Cersei rats out Loras and gets the, uh, the, the faith militant on his case. So they yeah. rest Loras and um, Marjorie is fucking losing her She's shit. Pissed. Why the fuck is my brother in a cell and Tommen's just clueless? He's such a limp noodle. You know, I, I, I don't know. I didn't order it. I love that he was like cutting into his meat and she like barges in and he's, <laughs> he's like, stopped, uh, like <laughs> what's <pause>. going on? <laughs> so he, he's Tom is just fucking clueless here. He doesn't even like know about what's going on basically. Um, and, and Marjorie is just so pissed. I, if this was me, <laughs> I would have my army rounding up the faith militant and putting like arresting everybody basically and i probably have my mother put under house arrest and stripped of all legal authority to make any decisions because uh you don't fuck with my bride basically <laughs> you know what i mean yeah for sure yeah it's not it's not cool plus like your t your time in power is over you had your chance yeah stop fucking around so uh Marjorie's like, we both know who did this. You told me she was returning to Casterly Rock, and Tommen is just like so clueless. Like, it's you're like, saying my mother did this? <laughs> yeah. What's going on? Yeah. You are really dumb for real. She's jealous that you're not hers anymore. Arresting my brother is revenge. Uh, aren't you and mother getting along? <laughs> and I love this because she's realizing like he's totally clueless so the anger is not going to work so she goes oh my sweet sweet king she's trying so hard not to freak me out at all yeah she has to like totally reset herself she realizes she needs to play a victim to get him to want to like take damsel action. in distress type thing yes and uh <laughs> even though she wants to like rip his face off yeah and i'm just like tom and you're so dense bro all right Where's Joffrey when you need him? That's right, I said it. <laughs> no, oh my god. No, no, no my ears are burning. <laughs> no way these faith militant fuckers would be allowed to get away with this if, if Joffrey, Joffrey was around. No. Yeah, obviously I wouldn't want Joffrey around, but... No. Um, it's like you said, do you have any affection for me at all? Of course I do. You're my queen. And he's so like like uh, gallant in this moment and everything. Like he's He's trying, but he's just such a dope. He is. And he's so, so cute, though. It's like hard not to. Right. Like yeah. He's him. like a little, like little. <laughs> he's like a like, little kid. Yeah, he is too. And so again, manipulating someone into thinking they're making their own decision. She's like, I can't bear to think of my brother locked away in some grimy cell. I'll set like, him free for you. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That was great. That's a good, good uh, impression there. And she's like, "You promise." And so uh, then it cuts to him walking in to see Cersei, and she's smugly sipping her wine, like expecting this, you know. She's got all of her answers already prepared and her diversions and whatnot. Did I harass him? Well, no, but but you you armed a faith militant. You gave the High Sparrow an army. I did. And your wife has every right to criticize. <laughs> we can't allow fanatics to arrest the Queen's brother, no matter his perversions. He's such a manipulating bitch. <laughs> Screw you, Cersei. <laughs> like, goddamn. She's just the worst. She has him arrested, and then she's, like, just saying, oh, we can't allow him to be arrested, you know, like this will not stand it's like you did this is certainly testing his abilities to see how much she can manipulate him yeah she's just straight lying to his face like god damn i mean she knows that she's his mother and she knows that he's gonna listen but in this situation she's just testing to see what he's going to do yeah apparently and um so he's like then i can i tell marjorie you'll have sir loris released I told you I'm not holding Sir Loras. <laughs> You're the king. <laughs> Do something about yeah, it. I'm sure if you speak to the High Sparrow, he'll release the poor boy. So he goes to see the High Sparrow and uh, starts walking up the steps and all the sparrows converge on him, basically. Halt! His holiness is praying and uh, he will not be disturbed. Okay, did you notice the camera angles in this? It's the same camera angles that we get when Tywin is looming over Joffrey. So above the Faith Militant, there's a camera angle that's looking down onto Tommen, and he mm. looks super small. And then <laughs> nice. when it's from Tommen's perspective, it's from lower, like low down. Looking with him up. In the, looking up at the Faith Militant. That's so funny. And... <laughs> <coughs> So they won't let him through, and one of the king's guard or gold cloaks, probably a king's guard, is like, uh, "Give the order, and we'll clear out this rabble." And Tommen's like, "You mean kill kill them here at the sept?" <laughs> he's like, which tells that he's already kind of religious. Yeah, he's a little pious. He's like, he's not like kill them. It's not about killing them so much. It's in front of the sept. Yeah. Like, at what? this holy place? Like, we can't do that here. And no I love way. the response. You'll be sending them to the gods they love. Sending them to meet the gods they love. And uh, it's in, it gets intense. As as he says that, he sort of like starts to unsheath his sword. And all the, all the sparrows, like, get their clubs and their little, like, stupid weapons ready. Fucking hate the sparrows. <laughs> They're so lame. And uh, Tommen is just, like, it's kind of stupid for the Kingsguard here to be like, escalating at this particular moment because Tommen is standing right in the potential crossfire. Yeah. Like within striking range for this sparrow and everything. <laughs> and uh, so basically Tommen is just mad weak. Everyone thought he would be a good king because he doesn't have like a horrible temperament, you know? But when it comes to needing to be strong... He needs to make decisions. Yeah, he's just and be such strong. a limp noodle. Oh, it's just like limp biscuit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so people start to shout in the distance in ridicule. Bastard! You're an abomination! Born of sin! <laughs> Filthy bastard! <laughs> and Tommen like backs down and retreats basically. We'll find another way. 
Abomination! Yes. <laughs> and uh, Tommen returns to Marjorie. My queen, there was no way to free Sir Loris without violence. And she like has one of those like cartoon blanks. Don't 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 do like. I know. Like so fucking what? She's Kill like, them all and get my brother out. You're the king of the Andals, the lord of the seven kingdoms, protector of the realm, and you let a band of fanatics imprison your brother by law. She's like <laughs> freaking whooping his ass yeah. right now verbally. Yeah, and he's like, well, I'm. I'm, I'm going to speak with the high sparrow are you when i i i don't know sometime soon <laughs> when i'm 28 yeah. and have muscle <laughs> it's like he was he was praying just now and even tommen knows that this is like a pathetic excuse this is facial expression gives away his feeling of embarrassment and helplessness and it's just fucking cringeworthy to watch just oh god tommen like, yeah so pathetic and it's just too much for marjorie to even handle his just utter weakness even the rainbow guard renly was ready to, to battle <laughs> that's that's classic and so yeah. uh it's just too much marjorie has to roll he's like she's like i i, I have to send word to, to grandmother and tommen is just not fucking getting it he's like well well, well, are you going to come back later to have sex with me <laughs> like like no she's so fucking pissed she's just trying not to beat you to death tom beat you yeah. yeah like you're so fucking clueless and what a like pointless question to ask no she's not coming back and when do you, when he asks that she like kind of stops in her tracks and she's just like glaring forward and she's facing like, away no, from him i'm gonna go be with my family which is a total slap in the face because she's married to him now yeah, technically their family <laughs> her new family yeah and uh usually it shows you how worked up Marjorie is because usually she's like a master of diplomacy and performance and manipulating people and just like playing the role of like playing the game in King's Landing, yes. you know, but she's so like beyond bothered because of all this that like her composure is just completely gone and she just has to go like she I has think because it's vacate. directly affecting her personally. Right. It's not something happening to other people that she has to be diplomatic about. Yeah. It's happening to her brother, who we know are they're very close to. It's each something other. that's like just has her totally out of her element. Like, yeah, she's never had to deal with something quite like this before where somebody directly in her family is, you know, being held captive by a <laughs> a group of fanatics and her husband is just like too bitch made to do anything about it. And uh yeah, that's basically to sum it all up, Tommen is just bitch made here. Totally. Bitch made motherfuckers get murdered and touched. Bitch made. <laughs> it's the best. Yeah, that's it for my number one. That wraps it up. All right. And your number one we covered as well already. Yeah. Too, right? Yeah. My number one was Jon Snow and Malisandra. All right. So let's uh, cover up, cover any notes that we haven't talked about. You uh, take it away. Your turn. Okay. Um, I'm going to go in sequential order from... So the next note that I have is Mace Tyrell. <laughs> <laughs> the boob. The boob. The boob. Um, <laughs> so we find out that the Iron Bank is called one-tenth of the crown's debts. And that's a fuck ton, basically. <laughs> and Cersei's kind of like, what? <laughs> How much can we afford? And... With winter coming, like, half what they ask, less... Like maybe less than that, she goes. Well, you're the master of corn. How corn? 
<laughs> got bigger chunks of corn in my crop. You're the master of coin. How do we pay them? And she knows that he's going to offer to pay because he's right. wants to. He's schmoozing with them again, making making you think people are making their own decisions. Yes. So this is a theme that's coming up in this episode for sure. Oh yeah. Um. But yeah, so Mace says, well, Heistel Rel could front the gold, and the crown will pay us back in time, or I'll have words with my daughter. And it's like, <laughs> you're so annoying. He thinks he's like being so cool and funny. And, and everyone <laughs> is like, nobody Just is amused. Shut up, dude. <laughs> They're like, oh my god. Like, putting, like, Kyburn like, raises his eyebrows and looks away. Like, awkward. Must have been hilarious acting this scene. No one wants to be Mace Tyrell. <laughs> no one wants to be that person. That's great. I love the the actor does a great job with it. He does. So really great job. He's nerdy in general, and the way he like holds his nose up, he looks so pompous all the time, and it's just it's a perfect fit for his character. Totally. Um, Cersei is playing the game here. You've always you've you've already given us too much. No, we must arrange better terms with the Iron Bank. Mace goes absolutely. Cersei goes in person, and he me? goes me. <laughs> 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 yes, we must send an envoy to the Iron Bank, someone of importance, <laughs> to show these bankers our respect. Um, so she's buttering him up and he is so tickled pink. He's sitting there yeah, and he's he wiggling is. and he's like, oh my God, keep it coming, Cersei. I love it. I would be honored, your grace. Yes. Oh, and then, yeah. And then she says the king's worried about, about his father-in-law's safety. safety. So he's appointed <laughs> Sir Marin to personally lead his escort. So here's... Here's a question for you. Why would Cersei appoint Sir Marin to go with him? Yeah, I don't know. I was trying to figure that out. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure. Like, is she trying to get rid of Sir Marin too? And is that to make room for the mountain? For maybe, yeah, I was thinking maybe to make room for the mountain. So that's kind of where I went with it, but... But we don't have any confirmation that the mountain is any type of, you know, capable shape yet. That doesn't not, happen until after she spends a good amount of time in, in a cell. Oh, that's true. Yeah. But maybe she's getting updates from Kyburn and we're just not seeing those updates. It's possible. Certainly but possible. But that's total speculation. I was just curious why... He I does mean, end up replacing Sir Marin because Marin gets killed... Yeah. And then yeah. Uh, it's him that, you know, steps so, up. So I just thought, you know, like, why does she feel the need to protect Mace Tyrell? Like, if she said, I mean, he's the master of coin. She's sending him over to Bravos. If something were to happen to him, like, oh, well, no one's going to be <laughs> mad at her. Yeah. So I'm not sure why he would need his own protection. So I found that kind of interesting why she sent Sir Marin. And he's like, ooh, my own king's guard. Like, safe, safe travels, Lord Tyrell. <laughs> he Get reminds me of like of the, the walrus and the carpenter. Like <laughs> he's like the walrus. <laughs> totally. Oh, man. And so we get kind of my favorite line from Pycelle. The small council grows smaller and smaller. 
Yeah. Cersei's like not small enough. And, <laughs> like you're next, and bitch. And Pycelle's face when she says that, he's like, oh. <laughs> like, uh-oh, am I next? Uh, he does a great job to put the Pycelle yeah. actor. Underappreciated. Yeah, so my next note is Cersei with the High Sparrow. Yep, same here. Okay, so why don't you talk about that? All right, so Cersei goes to meet with the High Sparrow. And um, she's trying to asking him if he wants to drink wine, and he's like, "Nah." <laughs> and the old High Septon would have just asked the vintage, which is kind of funny. And so the High Septon, the, the Sparrow, High Sparrow tries to kind of relate to her a little bit. And he's like, "He's like, I could say that the mind are temples to the seven and should be kept cure, pure, but the truth is, I just don't like the taste." And I'm like, oh, "I don't trust you." <laughs> Yeah, that's a load of bullshit. <laughs> yeah, you're just trying to like seem less extreme or something. I don't know. Never trust somebody More like More simple, him. yeah. Yeah, somebody who doesn't like the taste of wine. <laughs> it's like, if you don't There's like root beer, I don't trust you. you. <laughs> yeah. or, or mustard. <laughs> I love mustard. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really good. I don't like ketchup, but I like mustard. Oh my God, really? Yeah, it's too I can too no sweet longer trust me. you. I'm not a sweet person <laughs> you're a horrible mean person <laughs> I'm a horrible mean person no i'm i'm a sa- i like savory food so nice. even ketchup is like too sweet for me it's funny so uh he's like how may i serve the queen right and she's talking about how all around the they're hearing about septs being burned all over westeros silent sisters being raped bodies of holy men piled in the streets and uh, she has the dumb idea. It's her idea. Dumbest idea to, to arm the faith militant. I know. God what is, it, what are you doing? So just so dumb. Like, why would you possibly want to do this, Cersei? You think that, what, what is she thinking? That she could, like, give the High Septon power and that he'll, like, be her personal army? She doesn't understand the way that this guy thinks. Yeah, it's not about he's he's not gonna fill her own vendetta, uh, and he's not in it for power, like necessarily not for like his own personal power. He's an ideologue. Yeah. Uh, you know the difference between ideology and philosophy is not enough to articulate it. <laughs> I mean, I know that there's a there is a difference. <laughs> Basically, ideology is unchanging. So if you're an ideologue like the High Sparrow, you're a, like you have your views. You stick to them. You're unwilling to alter your your perceptions and your ideas based on new information. Um, it's very rigid and not like not advi- not advisable. You know, ideology is not good. What is good is philosophy, where you can have ideas, but your ideas are based on logic and reasoning and are open to being changed with the addition of new information and so just a side point but he's an ideologue you know and you can't reason with an ideologue by definition so she says perhaps the gods need a sword of their own in the days of the before the targaryens the faith militant dispensed the justice of the seven and he's like well you know the faith faith militant was disarmed more than two centuries ago and she's like, I'll, if I explain their holy purpose to my son, the king, I have no doubt he will sign a decree arming the believers you, f- you felt worthy. 
And it's just, it's just the dumbest idea. An army that defends the bodies and souls of the common people. An army in service to the gods themselves. And to you, of course, as the chosen representative of the seven. So this is where it's hinted that she's like trying to get him under her wing, basically. Yeah. In her pocket. Um, an honor I never expected or indeed ever wished for. Whatever, is, dude. You totally want it. Which is why you were it. chosen. Yeah, yeah, totally. Absolutely. So she says, you and I both know how the world works. Too often the wicked are the wealthiest beyond the reach of justice. And I'm like, <laughs> project much, Cersei? Right. Like you're talking about yourself enough there? I have um, that as a note, too. A total projection. Uh, and she basically goes on to say, um, the king can't always punish those who deserve it the most. Like, like the king can't go after <laughs> Loris, for instance. All sinners are equal before the gods. What would you say if I told you of a great sinner in our very midst, shielded by gold and privilege? Yeah, right in your midst, right this second. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Me. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, his response May the father judge him justly. Him. But uh, yeah, it's it's funny. She says shielded by golden privilege. And it sort of mirrors what he says to her when we strip away the wealth and the gold and the privilege. What You know, talking about Cersei later on when she's imprisoned, I think. Something like that. Yeah. But then obviously it's talking about L- Loris. So the sparrows are just invading the city and destroying barrels of wine and we're getting interjecting shots of like a montage with all this chaos and Lancel getting a seven pointed star carved into his forehead. So did the faith militant in history have these carvings on their head? Is that why they are doing it now that they're militant and not the sparrows anymore? I'm trying to understand why all of a sudden they're going to start branding their faces with those seven pointed star. Yeah. I'm not sure if there's a historical significance of like the old faith militant of old, because I took it as like a symbolism, that. like symbol symbology of them mo- moving from sparrows to a mil- like a faith militant. So they're gonna like, it's kind of like going joining the military and getting a tattoo, right? You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know so, if every faith militant would have it done, but certainly like it seems like the you know the higher ranking ones are getting this facial disfiguration. Sure. Yeah, it's pretty hardcore. So there's like a merchant getting his, all of his stuff destroyed by a sparrow, help his me. idols and everything. Yeah, and the gold cloaks turn their backs as he pleads for help and gets knocked to the ground by the sparrows. Um, the sparrows tear through Littlefinger's brothel, slapping whores and beating patrons with clubs, maniacally smiling and enjoying the violence to a disturbing degree. Definitely. And uh, they're like, you know, against prostitution and shit. <laughs> and this is where George Carlin would come in. Selling is legal. Fucking is legal. Why isn't selling fucking legal? (laughs) (laughs) Love that guy. So, Oliver tries to intervene. This is Lord Peter Baelish's establishment. And whack, it's elbowed in the face. (laughs) And then we hear uh, some guys in the background. Cocksucker. Boy fucker. You buggering filth. Uh there's a special place in the seventh hell for your kind. Please, please, I'll pay. I'll pay all of you. Yes, you will. <laughs> and uh, so Olivar is kind of watching from the door as they start um, executing the gay dudes for being gay. And that's Oliver's cue to get the fuck out of there, basically. Uh, yeah. He was kind of unfazed before this. 
But once they start killing the gay people, he's like, I need to get the fuck out of here. here. And he freaks him the fuck out and he runs. And then Lancel's head carving is complete and he sits up. His and, head uh, carving. Yeah, I, th- I thought it was kind of cool that how they like montaged it throughout this whole like scene of stuff. Yeah, pretty, pretty definitely. good directing. So then Loris is beating down some fool in the in the in the yard, and he finishes the guy off <laughs> and passes his sword <laughs> to oh somebody. God. And it's a terrible moment to pass off his sword because right at this moment, all of these sparrows rush into the yard and take him into custody. And he tries to run at first. Did you notice that? He's like, ah, like yeah. tries to squirm away. Um, and it, it sucks, too, because um, it would have been awesome to see Loris slice down all those fucking sparrows with a, with a sword, you know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, fuck the faith militant. Yeah. Hashtag. <laughs> Hashtag that shit, Duncan. <laughs> so... They're telling him, like, you have broken the laws of gods and men. And he's like, who do you think you are? Justice. So, fuck the faith militant. Fuck you, Lancel, for punishing... Fuck you, Cersei, for giving them power. Yeah, fuck the High Sparrow. Fuck Cersei. Fuck all these And as far as I'm concerned, this is the nail in the coffin for her last child as well. We get two people kind of putting their nails in their own coffins this episode. We have Baelish making a bad bet about Stannis and where he's placing Sansa. And we have Cersei making a bad bet about the faith militant, which comes back to bite her in the, in the butt big time. And it does, it's not necessarily, it hasn't resulted in her downfall yet, but it definitely resulted in the downfall of her whole family (laughs) and her, her offspring. Um, so I just think talking about, we mentioned Cersei projecting a minute ago. Now it's like Lancel projecting his own shortcomings onto like the entire population. It's like, you got Robert drunk. You fucked your cousin. Now you're punishing everybody else because of your self-loathing. Exactly. You're trying to take power to make yourself feel better. Yeah, it's fucking bullshit, man. Lancel. What do you got next? That's it for my notes. All right. That's uh, that's it for my notes, too. So let's... uh, Let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Stay with us, guys. That's Expression by Pold, P-O-L-D. Check them out at soundcloud.com slash pold-music. And we're back with news about Game of Thrones. First, from watchersonthewall.com. Surprisingly intimate, season eight may feature the longest battle in cinema history. Oh my god. And upcoming trailer teased by EW's Hibbard. By Luca Nieto. James Hibbert, I'm sort of paraphrasing here. James Hibbert of EW recently stated on their podcast, they spent 10 months filming six episodes of television, which would normally take about two months. 
That's Ugh. pretty crazy. And a lot of that stuff wasn't the big battle stuff, but the regular scenes of two people talking in a hallway, he clarifies. <laughs> if it's a scene that would normally take a day to shoot, they'd spend several days shooting because they're trying so hard to get every little thing right. So they do take after take from all sorts of different angles so that in end so that in editing it they have different ways to piece it together. But the battle is the big sexy thing, Hibbard concedes. It's shaping up to be what probably almost certainly is the longest consecutive battle sequence in cinema history. Oh yes, that's gonna be I'm so, so fucking, fucking excited. Uh-huh. They've looked to try to find other ones out there, like the one in the Two Towers in The Lord of the Rings, which is about 40 minutes, and in the movie 13 Assassins, which is also around 40 minutes. So this is basically going to be like an hour-long <laughs> yeah. battle scene. Yeah, he goes on to say, this is going to be longer than 40 minutes. <laughs> it's pretty nuts. That's so, incredible. Yeah, we can look forward to some epic an epic battle scene <laughs> my oh mind is exploding right now god. i'm so excited oh god they're making cinematic history yes they're also making television history because i can't think of any other tv show that had this like episodes that this long um no like up to two hours a piece i'm hoping we don't we don't know yet we know they're all gonna be longer than an hour but hoping for the two hours for each episode yeah that'd be awesome across all 10 fingers and 10 toes <laughs> okay all right, next one we have is from Deadline.com. Game of Thrones creators David Benioff and D.B. Weiss set for career honor at the VES Awards. Winter is coming tomorrow, in fact, <laughs> and the duo behind HBO's Game of Thrones is getting their due from the Visual Effects Society. Just to explain that, uh, today, while we're recording this, and the day that this article came out, it's December 20, 20th, it's, so tomorrow yeah, the is the first day of winter. You guys will probably get this uh, like on the first day of winter, maybe the second day, but <laughs> just to explain that. So Yes, the solstice is coming. Yes. All right, they continue. The VFX group said today that David Benioff and D.B. Weiss will receive its VES award for creative excellence at its 2019 trophy show. VES says the honor recognizes individuals who have made significant and lasting contributions to the art and science of the visual effects industry by uniquely and consistently creating compelling and creative imagery in service to story. The Game of Thrones creators, writers, and directors, and executive producers will pick up their hardware during the 17th annual VES Awards on February 5th at the Beverly Hilton. David Benioff and D.B. Weiss are groundbreaking storytellers who have redefined the relationship between the viewer and the story. VES board chair Mike Chambers said, you can easily see this from the epic following of Game of Thrones, a pop culture phenomenon, which is a testament to their expert blending of visual effects, evocative characters, and remarkable imagination. So true. Um, Great. They really do deserve praise for what they've accomplished, especially with visual effects, too, as well. You know, like, goddamn. Yeah, for sure. Moving on to Game of Thrones and history. This episode from Time.com, Nine Books to Read About the Real History Behind Game of Thrones by Sarah Begley. 
George R. R. Martin holds his cards close to his chest when it comes to his inspiration for Game of Thrones. After all, too much information could spoil the plot. But he has acknowledged that much political scheming that drives his A Song of Ice and Fire series is inspired by the Wars of the Roses when the houses of Lancaster and York engage in a bloody fight for the English throne. Other historical parallels have been drawn by fans of the books and HBO and the HBO series from Daenerys Targaryen as Elizabeth I to Brienne of Tarth as Joan of Arc. As we wait for both Martin's highly anticipated next tome and the show's seventh season, here are nine books about historical heroes and villains who played the real life Game of Thrones. Yeah, this is, I guess, is a little bit of an old article. <laughs> we'll just cover a few of these books for now. The first book is The War of the Roses by Alison Weir. Weir's overview of the struggle between the Plantagenets includes a vast cast of characters that bear similarities to Martin's. Like Robert Baratheon, Edward IV seized the throne from a real-life mad king, Henry VI. The conniving Earl of Warwick, known as the Kingmaker, will remind some of the powerful Tywin Lannister. And like Joffrey, some doubted the, the legitimacy of Edward of Lancaster, who shared Joffrey's penchant for violence. The Princes in the Tower, also by Alison Weir. When Edward IV died, his sons Edward V and Richard of Shrewsbury were mm -hmm. mysteriously in <laughs> Shrewsbury. <laughs> <laughs> were mysteriously imprisoned in the Tower of London and eventually disappeared. Many suspect they were put to death by their uncle, Richard III, who became king. Sound familiar? Many have compared the princes in the Tower to the disappearance of Bran and Rickon, though in Game of Thrones, the boys actually escaped and two corpses burned beyond recognition were presented as their stand-ins. Next is She-Wolves. The Women Who Ruled England Before Elizabeth by Helen Castor. Castor profiles some of the lesser-known ladies of influence in English history. Like Yara Greyjoy, Empress Matilda was meant to take the throne when her father died, only to be pushed out by a male relative. And like Cersei Lannister, Margaret of Anjou exerted outsized influence for a medieval queen consort and fought vigorously for her son's right to the throne. And, um... She-Wolves, just that title is remindful of the upcoming novella by George R.R. R. Martin, The She-Wolves of Winterfell. Oh, yes. I can't wait for that. Mm-hmm. Okay, next we have The Life and Death of Anne Boleyn by Eric Ives. The controversial second wife of Henry VIII bears similarities to two Game of Thrones figures. With her political scheming and potential incest with her brother, it's easy to link her to Cersei Lannister. But her marriage, which caused huge po political upheaval, also recalls the union of Talisa and Robb Stark, which had dark consequences for the family and the Seven Kingdoms. Very interesting. Yes. Hear that? What was that? Sir Matthew of House Rep. Cersei really is oblivious when dealing with the High Sparrow. As she tries to reduce the Tyrell influence in King's Landing, she may as well be t 
talking about herself when she says, there is a great sinner in our midst, shielded by golden power. Oh, just like you said, Lady Rachel. Yes. <laughs> the montage of the faith militant being armed and going into the city to wreak havoc mirrors what is going on in, in Marine with the Sons of the Harpy. Good call. I, <laughs> I don't know how I didn't even put that little connection together. That's yeah, great. that's crazy. Good call, yeah. The scene between Stannis and Shireen is so sweet that it just makes her ultimate fate so much more tragic. Oh, man. Isn't that the sure. truth? Sir Barristan teaches Danny about another of her family she never knew. He told her about the viciousness of her father, the Mad King, but now about the gentleness of her brother, Rhaegar. If only he wasn't taken out by an unruly mob of backstabbers in this episode, he would have continued to be such good counsel for her. Great feedback, Sir Matthew. Yes, always great to hear from your brother. Lord Axel of House Erickson. Say what you will, but the Sons of the Harpy look pretty cool. Intimidating <laughs> for sure, but cool. I have to agree. Those, yeah, masks, those masks are, are awesome. Tight. <laughs> and they should totally be expected since Daenerys completely overturned the old social order in like one day <laughs> and treated some of the masters like his star's father unjustly. Absolutely. Yep. Blowback. Something else that shouldn't come as a surprise is the rise of the faith militant. With all the rape, prostitution, murders of septons and septas, more of that in the books, Way plus more. all the other horrors of the war, it isn't surprising to see disenfranchised and delusioned young men getting together like that. It happened numerous times in real history. I really like the montage when they go on a rampage and smash everything up. <laughs> Smiley face. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Good to hear from you, Lord Axel. Yeah, thanks for the feedback. Totally. Lady Lucy of House Jane. I just noticed that Winterfell is rebuilt on the map with the Bolton sigil, which made me rage. Have you ever seen Jamie drink? It occurred to me in the scene with him and Bronn on the boat that we haven't. Doesn't mean anything, just that we see everyone else drinking a lot. Well, that is true. Mace is such a dick. <laughs> I'm almost glad he blows up in the sept. Tommen is so dull and thick. I know he's young, but still. I was confused about the Kingsguard. They seemed really eager to fight the Faith Militant on the steps, but when they were wrecking everything earlier on in the marketplace, they turned away. Or was it the City Watch? That was the City Watch. I think. And what the fuck did Cersei think would happen with the Faith Militant? She's so fucking arrogant to think she can control every little thing. I cannot wait for her in the cell and her walk of shame. <laughs> the scene with Stannis and Shireen was heartbreaking. I don't believe he knew what Melisandre was planning at this point. He doesn't seem to have the guile to be so two-faced. He's far too upfront. He meant what he said to Shireen, and I don't think he would have been able to put so much feeling into it if he knew he was going to burn her alive soon. And I loved Bronn's fake names. I used to call myself Mary if a bloke chatted me up that I didn't like. <laughs> With a laughing face. Did you get the impression that Hisdar was trying to keep Danny and Dario occupied with his harping, get it, on about the fighting pits? Did he want to make sure that Dario wasn't able to help with the defense of, against the harpies? Oh, and my favorite scene by far is Tyrion annoying the shit out of Jorah so that he takes his gag out. It reminded me of the scene in Ghost where Patrick Swayze sings to Whoopi Goldberg until she agrees to help him. Thank you so much for writing in, Lady Lucy. Always a pleasure to hear from you. 
Lady Hannah of House Kindler. Hello, Duncan and Rachel. Thanks for analyzing all these episodes for us. One thought, again, for Season 5, Episode 3. I started reading Fire and Blood. It's awesome. Read it. And I wondered about Marjorie, who is married now for the third time. In the Targaryen book, the queens whose husbands die and become a widow several times are seen sometimes as being evil witches or cursed or something. So what about Marjorie? She's been married to Renly, who died. She's been married to Joffrey, who died. And now she is married again, but no one raises any questions. Frohe Weihnachten. Merry Christmas. Hannah Kindler. Merry Christmas to you as well, Hannah. And the Frohes Neues Jahr. Happy New Year. Hello, Duncan and Rachel. It's Zach again with feedback for Sons of the Harpy. Man, this was such a good episode. Right from the beginning, uh, I thought it was really funny how Jorah Grand Theft Auto's that guy and takes his boat. It's like, man, just punches him right in the face. I mean, I guess he did throw him a couple of coins there, but man, just knocks him out and takes his ride. That's not cool, Jorah. Not cool. Um, it was a good conversation between Bronn and Jamie on the boat to Dorne. And I love how Bronn questions Jamie when he calls Marcella your niece. And Jamie gives him that eat shit and die look. Uh, I'm really, at this point in the story, I'm wondering how Jamie really feels about Tyrion. If he's really that upset with him. I mean, he, I don't know. I don't feel like Jamie really loved Tywin, but, and I think he is mad at Tyrion for killing him because of the situation that puts their whole family in. But when he says, if I ever see him, I'll split him in two. Then I'll give him your regards. I don't know if if he's overstating how much he hates Tyrion right now. If he's trying to oversell it for Bronn, or if that's really where he's at at this point. I, I mean, I guess it's that's really where he's at because that's put the whole family, you know, sp- spun into chaos. Uh, Mace Tyrell. Lady Rachel says it every time. He's such a boob, and and he really is. He's just a boob. That's the best way to describe him. When he talks about uh, the House Tyrell fronting the crown some money, and then they'll pay it back in time, and he tries to make a joke about, and if they don't, I'll have words with my daughter. And it's, he, he tries, you know, he's, it's like a dad joke. He laughs at his own joke, and everybody else just sits there totally straight-faced. It's pretty funny. Um of course, uh, Cersei sends him away so she can unleash the Faith Militant and they can take Loras, which will strike, which is ultimately it's a strike at Marjorie. Um, but I love how uh, after Pycelle says, the small council's growing smaller and smaller. <laughs> Cersei, uh, at this point in the books, she basically is totally fed up and done with Pycelle and uh, thinks he's definitely outlived his usefulness. <laughs> I love when she says, the small council's not small enough. And man, Pycelle just, the camera lingers on him after that line for a minute. And he just, he looks so butthurt and angry um, about how he's been treated. I mean, he hasn't been treated bad, but he's pretty scummy too. Um, I I was listening to something I can't remember about how they were somebody was 
wondering the possibility of Stannis knowing Jon Snow's true parentage, or at least maybe having some clue. And there was a line in this episode that, you know, kind of shows that he might have some inkling about it. Because Solis was uh, talking about how he was born of some tavern slut, and Stannis says, perhaps, but that wasn't Ned Stark's way. So, I don't know. I mean, it's just it could be just a passing line because he knew how honorable Ned Stark was. But uh, I don't know. He obviously sees something in John, but ultimately he just wants to use John to, to win the North. Uh, damn you, Solis. Damn you, Melisandre. I hate you so much. Talking about Shireen's King's Blood. Oh, God. Oh, you people. Sick. Um, man, when Melisandre comes in there trying to put the moves on John, talking about no magic, just life. It's like, no, John, it is magic. She's old. She's so old. Oh, <laughs> uh, man, she is. Ooh. Melisandre's got some moves. And she is creepy. God, man, she's creepy as fuck. <laughs> yep. Turning around at the door saying, you know nothing, Jon Snow. But man, don't be using Igret's line. That's not cool. Um, I, c- I can't take that scene with Shireen and Stannis and him telling the story of her getting grayscale and then getting cured and how he told everybody to go to hell. God, I just, I can't deal cannot deal with this Shireen stuff. Jeez Louise. Um, that was a good conversation between Sansa and Littlefinger down in the crypts of Winterfell. He's telling her that he's going to leave, and I love the quote that he tells her, you've learned to maneuver from the very best. And she really has. Littlefinger, I think all along, even at the very end, he underestimates how much Sansa has learned from him and from Cersei the time that she spent with him. But Littlefinger was right. She did learn to maneuver from the very best. Look out, bitch. Littlefinger, she's coming for you. Um, Everyone loves to hate the Dornish storyline, and obviously, you know, it's not the best, but this this little... uh, fight that uh, Jamie and Bronn get into. I mean, that's a good little scuffle. I mean, it's nothing fancy. You know, just a good two-on-four fight. And, um, of course, the uh, the workloads uh, split unevenly due to Jamie's uh, handicap. But uh, I thought that was pretty cool how that guy's sword got stuck in Jamie's hand. And uh, Jamie was able to get the upper hand on the one guy that he did fight. But uh, that was a pretty good little scrap. You know, there's obviously more to the Dornish storyline than that, but I liked it. Um, Man, that was such, that was a brutal attack, you know, coordinated attack in multiple places in the city by the Sons of the Harpy. Damn those guys, man. Damn them to hell. Agreed. Great fighting by Grey Worm, man. He he took down a bunch of those sons of bitches. But, uh, man, then uh, when Barristan shows up and spears that one guy, uh, to kind of make his entrance into that little place where they were, where Grey Worm was fighting, I was like, "Oh yeah, it's Batman! Batman is here!" I, uh, man, that was a good fight. I, I wish it would have been more. If we finally got to see Barristan Selmy fight, and he fought great, fought valiantly with lots of skill, but um, a little bit longer action scene with. Um, Batman, Barristan Batman would have been great, but uh, 
what we got was pretty great in and of itself. That's it. That's all I got for Sons of the Harpy. Y'all keep up the great work. Awesome feedback, Zach. We always love hearing from you. Totally, brother. Thank you for sending your thoughts. All right, that's our show, episode 86. Thanks for listening, everybody. Yes, thank you so much, and hope everybody enjoys their holiday celebrations over the next few days. Oh, yeah, this is probably the last episode that's going to come out before Christmas, huh? I would think so. I know we're recording before that, but I'm sure you probably won't get around to dropping that one before Christmas, so... Merry Christmas, happy holidays, happy Hanukkah, whatever you celebrate. We love all of you. Yes. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you guys have a wonderful Westerosi Christmas. (laughs) With Uh, no marriage or celebratory deaths, okay? Just like keep it cool, people. (laughs) And if you're still doing any uh, late holiday shopping, (laughs) feel free to go to gameofmicrophones.com and click on our link to Amazon. As an Amazon associate, we earn from qualifying purchases. If you'd like to donate or subscribe to support us, you can go to paypal.me slash gompodcast and patreon.com slash gompodcast to donate an amount of your choosing. And there's links to both of those at gameofmicrophones.com. Any contribution you make helps, and you can help secure the continued existence of Game of Microphones through the long night and beyond and beyond yeah and into the next long night <laughs> when, yes, the, when the spinoff as, starts as of the spinoff <laughs> yeah, totally we'd like to thank our patrons sir matthew of house rep lady lucy of house roberts lady candace of house twos lord jeff of house allen sirenicide and luke the low duke we love you guys and appreciate your patronage hope you guys have a great christmas Yes, thank you guys so much. We love you. Mm-hmm. And we also want to give a huge thanks to Lady Lisa of House Sky, Pyromancer. Yeah! <laughs> She's been critical, essential personnel behind the scenes working to get GameOfMicrophones.com up and running. And yes, go, it's go awesome. check it out. It's, it's pretty freaking epic. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty cool site. Lots of neat animations with like ravens flying all around and. It's awesome. Swords sa- stabbing things. She's so freaking talented. Can I just have like an ounce of your talent, please? So I can do something cool. <laughs> like draw a picture. Yeah, speaking of her talent, uh, you should, guys should definitely check out her excellently illustrated children's book, The People You May See, available now on Amazon, highlighting her talent as an artist. World class. For sure. Next episode, we'll be covering Season 5, Episode 5, Kill the Boy. Give it a watch and send us your thoughts. We'd love to read them on air. Yes, please send in your Ravens calls. We love reading them. (laughs) If you'd like to call, you can always call us at 813-JOFFREY. That's 813-563-3739. If you would like to write in, you can email us at ravens at gameofmicrophones.com. Check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash gompodcast and give us a like and rating if you don't mind. That'd be great. And while you're at it, you might as well give us a review on iTunes too. Help bump us back up into the search results, hopefully. And uh, we've got, we actually have gotten a few nice reviews pretty recently. So I think we're going to read them on the next podcast and give a shout out to those uh, 
people yes, for Yes, thank you guys. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Imsa. Uh. You can also listen to Game of Microphones on YouTube, BitChute, and Steam It. Just search for Game of Microphones to find our channel. We can't create a custom URL on YouTube until we have 100 subscribers, so please subscribe as well. Likes, comments, and shares are also greatly appreciated. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, Gab, and Minds at GOM Podcast. And we're on Tumblr, too, at Game of Microphones. All right, that's our show. Thanks for listening. can't. Why? I swore a vow. I loved another. The dead don't need lovers, only the living. I know, but I still love her. You know nothing, Jon Snow. We need her blood, you know? We're gonna murder her, yeah, like, in an episode or two from now. She runs off like napoleon dynamite like (laughs) (laughs) shuffles off of screen hilariously i I thought that that was great cinematography lord smallwood that's an unfortunate name smallwood (laughs) oh my god i didn't even pick that up lord wibbly more than lord wibbly (laughs) your perfect tits are a lie It's another clue that there's more going on than meets the eye with Jon Snow. Transformers! <laughs> he pulled off his helm and all the, the ladies started giggling. Ovaries <laughs> swelled across yeah, the land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, that was my number five and my number one. And your number five. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit, it's happening to me now! You know? But first, Jamie says, <laughs> we need to bury these bodies. <laughs> okay. So we were talking about Tyene's boobies. Mm. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Boobies. Oh, I'm so sad. Yeah, it's sad. It's her last opportunity to get to know Rhaegar a little better until she gets the opportunity to meet his son. Where they just go to town on each other. <laughs> and I'm like, fuck, Barristan is so goddamn cool. Batman. Barristan. It's his total derailment from his otherwise generally righteous path. You know? <laughs> yeah. Aside from the shadow demon, the kinslaying and whatnot. And he's like, oh, what's touching me? <laughs> and what, ki- what kind of slap is it? Him slap. Oh. <laughs> Slaps the shit out of him. I'll set him free for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That was great. That's a good, good uh, impression there. Such a manipulating bitch. Screw <laughs> you, Cersei. <laughs> like, goddamn. This will not stand. It's like you did it. She goes, Well, you're the master of corn. How? C- corn. <laughs> <laughs> Got bigger chunks of corn in my crap. And he's like, ooh, my own king's god. Like, safe, safe travels, Lord Tyrell. And he finishes the guy off and passes his sword <laughs> to oh somebody. God. Did you notice that he was like, ah, like, yeah, right, yeah, just and the two twice, um, yeah. <laughs>